0: everybody welcome back to the third man podcast i'm your co-host settle down
1: hey settle down hey
0: i'm your co-host paul kaminsky
1: i'm your other co-host james kaminsky and we are joined by tobias
2: and julia from atmeg are
1: you also (laughs) kaminsky's what day is it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're here with
0: tobias and julia from the wonderful band at make after the money is gone and their album wishes is available now whenever fine records are sold i assume and they're here today to join us to talk about a very special third man records release that came out this past fall it's called southeast of saturn and it's a collection of detroit shoegaze music i guess from the shoegaze scene now most people would know shoegaze i guess from the english iteration but detroit actually had a thriving shoegaze scene going on with bands like majesty crush and wendy and carl and our friends from atmig have joined us to help facilitate some interviews do some interviews with us with some of these bands hey yeah
2: thank you guys so much for having us
0: yes thank you
1: We appreciate it. We wouldn't have been able to get in contact with any of these folks without you. We owe a lot of gratitude to you guys. So thank you very much for that.
2: Well, it's our pleasure.
3: Yes, um, I'm a big fan. So in addition to finding their social security numbers (laughs) and uh, dietary requirements, (laughs) I also found their contact information and leveraged our relationship with you. Thank you very much to (laughs) enlarge our presence (laughs) In Southeast Michigan, <laughs> we're all
0: enlarging things. It's all
3: great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: to be fair, we know Wendy and Carl just a little bit from That's their true. record store. We, we do Wishes It's Available Stormy, at um, Stormy, Stormy Records, Records yeah. in Dearborn, Michigan. And so we have had actual conversations with them in person.
3: And coincidentally, we did our cover of one of the Majesty Crush songs this spring before knowing about any of this. So I had already reached out to the band members saying,
0: what do you think? Yeah,
1: Yeah. well,
0: we're happy you did.
1: Yeah, and I think I speak for Paul when I say, uh, yeah, feel free to use us, it's yeah. fine.
2: Uh, uh, we're... Same, <laughs> it's if you there. need any contact in Detroit. <laughs>
0: Penny for my love. So yeah, we're going to talk to a few of those groups today, and there's going to be some more third-man connections than I think James and I were aware of with the shoegaze scene heading into this discussion. And those kind of took us by surprise and are pretty darn cool because Third Man puts out these collections sometimes, like Southeast of Saturn, and you're not quite sure how many run-ins with sort of the Detroit garage rock era there actually was between whatever genre it is and the Third Man sort of world of the contemporary acts. So that was really, really interesting. So we're going to get into that. But before we get into that, I do want to highlight for anyone who doesn't know what shoegaze is. Shoegaze is, it's like a a subgenre of Indian alternative rock that I guess originated in the United Kingdom in the late 80s. And it's got this sort of ethereal mixture of guitar distortion and pedals and feedback and all that kind of stuff, almost a uh, sound picture type of vibe going on. And then it's put to a beat usually. And there is more like poppy versions of it. And there's more sort of trippy kind of spaced out versions of it. But bands like My Bloody Valentine, that's kind of one of the more popular groups of the genre. And so I guess it was primarily a United Kingdom thing. But Southeast of Saturn highlights the Detroit iteration of it. You can really hear echoes of it in the current third man acts like William Tyler, for example, definitely has some of that ethereal quality to the type of music he makes albeit with in more melodic sense so we had the pleasure of talking to two of the bands or well members from two of the bands that show up on this collection southeast of saturn and the first one up here is one of the bands that if you were aware of one of them outside of the shoegaze scene or outside of the detroit kind of area you probably would know number one fan and that's by the band majesty crush and so we are joined by hobie ecklin to talk about majesty crush and to get to know his story and that band's story and so that's the first one we're going to throw to here and it was an amazing conversation thank you hobie for joining us
1: yes that was beautiful yeah that guy whew, he's probably one of the best storytellers we've ever had on the show Yeah, <laughs> and uh i don't know if we could top it i really don't
0: ah well, we might, but later in the episode. So thank you uh, to Hobie. We're going to kick it to the. We're going to keep the chit chat to a minimum because uh, we talked a lot already this episode. It's going to be a long one, everybody. Buckle up. So we're going to shoot over. We to, didn't
2: talk at all.
0: We're going to shoot over to Hobie now. like to welcome Hobie Eklund for the band Majesty Crush of the Third Men Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is great.
4: Well, dude, thanks. I mean, first of all, so much for having me. It's been a two-year process to uh, rediscover this music and recontextualize it. Now to have a platform to hear it enjoyed, appreciated, and shared. You know, it's something we're very happy about. It's also something our late singer David Strotter, like that was his last wish. I'd like my music to be heard, so yeah heavy moment right off the bat <laughs> yeah. yeah well
0: look we're gonna talk a lot today about legacy and about the wonderful wonderful music that you guys made but we'd also like to thank just at the top here our friends from after the money is gone julia and tobias julian tobias thank you so much for putting all this together and helping facilitate all of this here today thanks
3: hi oh. absolutely an honor yeah. And thank
4: you guys for the record. I just got their record. I think it's Wishes, but uh there's what was the track I like so much? Is it the track Wishes, that funky yes. fall kinda of Princehorn dance school thing? <laughs> Such a dope record. Such a dope record.
3: Thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much. If
3: I could smile wider I would.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're here today, we're talking about the Third Man Records release, Southeast of Saturn, which features Majesty Crush on it, including many other Detroit area shoegaze groups from the 80s and 90s. So I guess, you know, we'll sort of dive in here, just getting a little bit of background about the band Majesty Crush and how y'all got together. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you, David, Adele, and Michael got together in those early days. And if the band had a mission statement, I, I believe I had read online that there was another band in the mix called Spawn Ranch, which sticks out in my mind because I've been watching a lot of Manson documentaries lately. But uh, I, uh, I guess, <laughs> w- what's the genesis of Majesty Crush?
4: Yeah, so I went to the University of Michigan, and I was roommates with a gentleman named Bradley Horowitz, who is now one of the super-duper huge upper echelon at Google. But in back in the day, he was this guitar player in a trio called Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch had a singer from downriver who was kind of like Perry Farrell before Perry Farrell, capable of falsetto and childlike. Odell Mm -hmm. played drums on the ground, mostly taped together. And (laughs) Bradley played through these great effects. And I was just immediately taken with everything they were, which was very pure. They would do like live jams. And I was like their super fan. And then they asked me to play bass. And I'll never forget, the first time I rehearsed, it was in the basement of my place in Ann Arbor. And I was wearing the Bad Brains Return to Heaven t-shirt. Yeah. And uh, Bob looked at me and he goes, why'd you ever leave? And I was like, man, this is the band for me. Well, that band I recorded a little bit with and we broke up. And then um, in the early 90s, when we were in Spawn Ranch, we were friends with Dave Strauder. He was our roommate. We lived together in Hamtramck, actually. And we would go to this record store, Played Again Records. And this guy, Michael Siegel, and he was that record store clerk, and Dave brought home this record. It was uh, A.R. Kane, the '69 record. And I don't know if you know what A.R. Kane is. It's two of the guys from Mars. You know, pump up the volume, pump up the volume. But they're sure. like these—they're like these black dub reggae shoegaze gods. And we just absorbed everything. Now, at the time, my girlfriend was best friends with Zyola Blue, the late Ziola Blue, who was Perry Farrell's second girlfriend. You know, three lovers in three ways. So we had been getting cassettes from Perry. Like, yeah, Perry's got this new band after Ziola passed. And it'd be like, man, this is really cool. And it was the Jane's Addiction acoustic record. So around 1990, Dave and I and Odell were hanging out. We were like, we really want to play. We invited Michael, and he only had a three-string guitar. It was a D-flat, and it was two A's, and it was a crappy little student PV. But he was capable of these amazingly simple runs. And I was like this total, you know, hold your Colze, Joy Division wannabe bass player. But I always liked Motown and dub reggae. I love the simplicity You know, I'm kind of autistic, so I love the box patterns and crap like that. And I was really into it. And uh, David had come into a Spawn Rant session. We were screwing around with dance music. And we are like, well, Dave sings. Let's give him a shot. And his first lyrics are, what would you do if two lions attacked me, tearing (laughs) me up with their claws? And we were like, what? (laughs) Just...
5: What? (laughs) What?
4: Now, what would you do? I'm I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we were like, I mean, this was a little dance music experiment we were doing with Mikey Clark. You know, Mikey Clark and St. Clown Posse, Primal Scream, Kid Rock. He was our producer. We all looked at each other like, this dude. And then we lived together after college. We weren't even a band. We had these records, and Dave would bring all this great crap. And that Arcane 69 record was like, and it was like, you know, Cocteau's released Heaven or Las Vegas. And it looked like some of these bands that, um, you know, you would listen to in a cold Michigan winter with your goth girlfriend smoking jars <laughs> were actually on MTV. We're like, Charms. you know, and then his name is alive. It's on 4AD. And you probably heard Warren tell the story. He goes to visit them. And it's Ivo and freaking uh, Elizabeth. And, uh, and they're listening to the Stooges. And Warren's like, are you guys fucking with me because I'm from Detroit? Like what? He goes, no, (laughs) Stooges are a jam. If we could be, we love the repetition of the Stooges, but we can't pull off rock and roll. So chubby cherubs it is. (laughs) And having that connection, we were just like, we could really do this. And the thing was, and the thing to understand about Majesty Crush is, we sort of based it loosely on the acoustic Jane's Addiction EP. It's the one that has uh, the original Jane Says on it. And it also has the, uh, they do the Lou Reed. It was all right. They do Lou Reed rock and roll. And that and the Arcane record, and we were like, we can do this. And we invited Michael, and we came up with the songs Alina and Sunny Pie. And we recorded that as our first seven inch. And again, David, the story was, you know, I worked at an X-rated bookstore. And we're just like, this guy is like Prince times Marvin Gaye times Sid Barrett. <laughs> and in college, David introduced me to like Sid Barrett. He introduced... He was like my total musical hero. And you've heard the stories. Einster Zendeneubat would play. And there's Dave and Blixa conversing with cigarettes. (laughs) Dave didn't even smoke. Conversing with cigarettes in German. And we were just in... This guy was like David Bowie times Nick Cave and Bob Marley to us. Like, we were like beholden. And, And, of course, he had grown up. He and Odell grew up in Southfield with Motown royalty. So we would have... Diana Ross's nephews from L.A., who were all like kind of crazy, show up. And Dave knew uh, T-Boy, who was, I believe, Diana's, the guy who wrote I Want You for Marvin Gaye. So Dave in his back pocket was always like, what we're doing is, as based in Motown, as it is this sort of European conglomerate of Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett, all our amps said, Majesty Crush Detroit. If you've ever seen Pink Floyd live at Pompeii, it says Pink Floyd London. Our amp said, <laughs> our amp said. And you, another, another huge incident for us was the first Verve EP, the Voyager 1 EP, where they do the live version of Slide Away. Mm-hmm. You got to remember when the Verve first came out, when they were just Verve, they were, Dave called them when we saw them at uh, New Music Seminar. He was like, it's like Rod Stewart meets God. they were rock they toured Europe people don't know this they toured Europe with the Black Crows and totally hung and we never thought of ourselves as like a shoegaze band we always thought of ourselves as a rock band that like all the greatest rock bands come from like a vulnerability a passion and a flaw and you know I was enamored of like Joy Division New Order The Cure I loved all my like moody I used to call it that, you know, the sweater with the long sleeves music. <laughs> and we just loved it. We were just the biggest fans of music and the biggest fans of these artists. Dave used to sign his middle name, Fernier, because that was Alice Cooper's real name. Um, <laughs> he just, you know, we we would play. You got to remember the band Mule, who is the Laughing Hyenas after band with Wig. That band was in our basement. They formed when Majesty Crush forms. We used to do gigs with the Laughing Hyenas and Mule and, like, Wig. I don't know if you remember Early Wig. Early Wig was birthday party meets public enemy. So this is the way it was. Like, all the rocker dudes in Detroit, when our record came out, they would be like, hey, I just want to let you know, my lady and I fucked your record every night. And I was like, (laughs) that sounds really corny. But then Lenny Kravitz, that's what Slash said to Lenny Kravitz, was... You're not really our kind of rock and roll, but my lady and I fucked you music every night. we <laughs> realized we fit this, biz- our first gig was opening up for Mazzy Star on my birthday in like 1991. And I remember Hope Sandoval was like to Dave, like you've got a really nice voice. And Dave was an excellent lyricist, a brilliant vocalist, both of which until say like Blur and Oasis and Verve came along shoegaze wasn't known for its concise and great vocals and dave we always thought we were writing songs that could reach a broader audience and that's why we were we loved our spaceman three we loved these my Bloody valentine but we loved bands that had songs and we weren't involved like with like 10 minute psychedelic jams i mean i love the velvet underground chichi was supposed to be a cover of all tomorrow's parties Number one fan was supposed to be a cover of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, but I suck, you know? (laughs) But those were our ambitions. Our ambitions were not like, let's sound like the eggs record. Let's be like Moose, you know? (laughs) I was always like, this to me, Sunny Pie to me was Ice Blink Luck meets EPMD, so what you saying? same verse chorus bridge break part, and it has almost the same everything about it. And I'll stand by that. You know what I mean? I mean, that was my inspiration. It was a lot of hip-hop, because hip-hop really broke music down into its rhythm, and it used rhythm as a, uh, what do you call it, an arrangement component. And I think that's something that set Majesty Crush apart, a prominent frontman, very rhythm and song-driven material. And that's really like we got invited to open for everybody. I mean, I already listed it, but it was like Lush, Curve, My Bloody Valentine, The Verve. We opened for Soup Dragons. We opened for Jesus Jones. We opened for every band ever, you know, because we weren't a typical rock band trying to sound like Seattle or Eddie and the fucking Cruisers. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. You you know, know, I, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You
0: know, there's room for Eddie and the Cruisers. <laughs>
4: Yeah, our heroes weren't on the radio. Our heroes were the bands that we knew as this got popular. You know, I remember talking to Billy Corgan about the Verve. And Billy said, because he knew they'd toured with Black Crows, he goes, that band could be a massive rock band if they don't get pigeonholed into this whole shoegaze thing. And I mean, if there's one thing, and, and I don't mean to say shoegaze is good or bad. I think what shoegaze did is it made us rethink of the guitar as an expressionistic, non-male instrument. My girlfriend who was in Hot Foot and Puddin' Pie, Kim Morrow, always said, grunge is just heavy metal without the solos. And damn, was she right, right? But yeah. like one thing that I really enjoyed about a lot of shoegaze is it used the guitar. I always used to say it was like blast first. It was colors. It was noise. You hear it like in the Astro Bright jam that's on the... Uh, on the comp, man, Bright were the masters of that kind of like, you know, smeared crayon, the red light blinking on the wing of the plane with 600 mile an hour winds going by it, that kind of guitar sound. get lost in that all day my eyes just roll back in my head you know but at the end of the day i'm like a, a, a like a pop geek i like writing like hooks and you know we had music like pennies for love and "Uma." those were
6: straight
4: pop songs man you know the guitar was mangled you know but it was beautiful <laughs> you know so that's where madness Chris came from it was like marvin Gaye, prince a.r kane james addiction and sid barrett era pink floyd how did you settle on the name Majesty <laughs> Michael, who's a fucking genius. It was so bad, we were auditioning Dumini Deporis for guitar, and he'd gone to school with Dave and Odell, and Dumini, as you know, is a p-funk guitarist. He's one of the best guitar players in the world right now, and I wanted to call the band Strotter Dome after Welcome to the Terror Dome, <laughs> D-O-H-O, David Odell, Hobie Michael. Yeah. You, that got shot down. So fucking fast. I wanted to call it innocence mystery. I mean, I was the king of being made fun of for like being that overly enthusiastic base player writer, you know, cause at the time I was writing for Metro times, they'd be like, save that shit for the Metro times, dude, you know, <laughs> but David, uh, he came up, Michael came up with it. And it's per- if you know, David's person or, uh, Michael's personality, it's bone dry and beautiful and perfect. He's like a a talk show, like Dick Cavett talk show host type character. And he came up with the name Majesty Crush. So it's kind of like you have a giant crush on somebody, but it's also like Mm. your expectations are being put down and you're being brought to scale. And trust me, having a band in the Indian Village section of Detroit at that time, you felt Majesty Crush because it was basically empty, you know? Half of that band was because we had nothing better to do. You know, it was like Crazyville. You know, the only bands that were happening then, Sponge, of course, they came out of nowhere. They used to be Loudhouse. You know, it was when the uh, bands like the Gories and um, the Dirt Bombs were starting to kind of pick up. Yeah.
0: This is the Gories from Detroit, hot
7: off the press. It's gonna jump on you, baby, and it's gonna stay in your dress. Here it comes.
4: No, what was that other one called? Rocket 455. That was yeah. the other one that was real big.
6: Yeah. And yeah.
4: Danny Crowhaw, the Doll Rods came out of that. I mean, those yeah. were all buds. I just love and respected them. But we we couldn't, I mean, I couldn't play. Nobody could really play. I think Odell was probably the best musician. We knew what we liked, though. And that was the best compliment we ever got. Like, the guys from Charm Farm... Would say, you guys are sort of like you too. It's not that you're technically great musicians, but you do very well with each other. And it's (laughs) not always about, you know, or like Joy Division, there was a chemistry. Clearly, there was a chemistry. Yeah.
0: Odell certainly, you know, seeing those live performances, there's a handful of them online and he is just going crazy on the kit back there. Very animated. Your live sets are actually super cool to watch because not only do you get Odell going nuts back there and then you and Michael are kind of like in the zone the whole time, but then you got like David wandering around. And there was one where he just <laughs> comes up behind you and starts humping you. I was like, holy shit.
4: <laughs> this is great. Oh, yeah. He used to take his mic stand in his mic and he would, like thrust it in and out of the speakers and swirl it around. And the sound men, of course, are like, what the hell is happening here? It's like a Geiger counter. And, and nobody could figure it out. And you would just hear this big, you know, the vocal mic is suddenly a wash of guitar. Dave was, and this is what I will credit David with utterly, we would record every practice on a little like jambox recorder. It's probably a lost art now because it was all cassette based and he would listen to it and listen to it and write lyrics. And the thing to understand about David is how much he entrusted us with the songwriting process mm. and how beautiful he was to make all of us feel good about it. I mean, I know I was very insecure. Michael, of course, You know, we all were better at something else. I was a better writer than I was a musician. Michael was a record store clerk and artist. We always had a little chip on our shoulder because we always felt like we were hobbyists and we'd never be taken seriously. You don't know how many people tried to dismiss Majesty Crush because we sounded like Joy Division or I worked for the Metro Times and that's the only reason we ever got any breaks. And I understand that totally. But I think the one thing we did, weirdly authentically, is we were ourselves, and it's the corniest shit, but it's because we had no choice. We couldn't play anything else. I think the the furthest we got, the tour we did right around the time is when Waco, Texas was happening because we drove down. We used to cover Now I Want to Be Your Dog and I'm 18 by Alice Cooper, just sort of because we were playing in the South and we were very aware we had two black members no matter how cool a scene was it usually defaulted to kind of like let's just say it was a southern goth kind of vibe that wasn't you know we just we were trying to say hey we're a rock band from detroit and keep it very accessible and i think that's something else we did i think you could see majesty crush and go great front man pretty guitar really consistent driving rhythms. And this band belongs to be on a stage playing because the drummer is that good. The rhythms are that good. And that's something that I've always loved about great shoegaze, like ride the drummer and ride. You listen to the song, leave them all behind that motherfucker. It's like listening to Metallica master of puppets or, <laughs> you know, the, the, the crazy drum fills. I'm a sucker like I'm so like binary like zeros and ones I can get a whole rhythm and melody out of that and anybody that's heard my bass playing knows that but the point is is that I just was such a fan of how music could get me out of my head and uh, you know a really influential record I don't know if you guys know this one but uh, Uber Europa by Loop Prisma Europa there's two live versions but the one of them it's a 15 minute two chord song that's based on a bass riff that's got a lot in common with number one fan and they just go for 15 minutes and anywhere we would drive to practice we'd put in that cassette and you'd listen to the whole song because everything in detroit's 15 minutes apart 15 minutes 15 and you just by the end of it you know you feel like you just got out of the shower you're rinsing off you're drying off in the air conditioner it was beautiful Those are the kinds of things we did was like, we just really loved music. We loved that we could create it. We, we used to jokingly call it electric low rent meditation because at the time that's kind of the <laughs> function it served, you know, there's sure. nothing to do in Detroit on Tuesday night.
0: Well, we, uh, we want to talk a little bit about number one fan in a moment, but I just want to touch on just to go back to something you said a moment ago, you said that you were hanging out a bit with the dirt bombs and the doll rods and the, uh, gories. I actually didn't realize that you had that connection to the garage scene at that time or the, or the I
4: would, I would call it indirect. What was yeah. beautiful was, is we knew Dan. Yeah. Dan was the dude. If I went and saw the three o'clock in Ann Arbor, right. Dan would be up front doing the jerk in a Paisley <laughs> shirt. And we, I was always like, well, how come you're not going to see, I don't know. It was like the jammer style console. He goes, it's much cooler to be a mod. Oh, it was red cross. He's like, it's much cooler to be a mod at a Red Cross gig. So you couldn't help but see these people around. It wasn't that we were playing the same venues, right. but if you were in Detroit, yeah, and you you gotta remember, our basis was Zoots. Zoots was where Dave lived, and it's where Mule used to practice. Our practice space was the basement of Zoots. We shared it with Mule. so. We were going to interact with these harder rock bands and garage bands, even if it was two steps apart. And this is a very true and beautiful story. One of our first benefactors and the guy who would give us the prime gig the night before Thanksgiving opening for his band with a sold out thing at St. Andrew's Hall was Dan, little John Miller in Goober and the Peas. Yeah. They were massive, massive fans. They actually wanted us to do a record on their label. Really? And we were totally flattered. But it was also one of those things where it just worked out that we did it on our own and everything was okay. But Dan was honestly, and you know his story, being in Two Star Tabernacle and all of his dance, just gorgeous and wonderful. And, of course, Jack played with them, and everybody knows everybody, dude. Mm -hmm. One
5: more dream 12-year-old Brandy I'll be on my way. One last pop this old pipe, I'll bid you adieu. Once the smoke dissolves, then I'll be gone. You can leave me alone. One last
0: Do you ever have any interactions with the White Stripes or the Go or any of those Jack Bands at the
4: time? Well, you know, those Jack Bands. Well, what (laughs) I admired so much, just Jack Bands, that's good. Um, What I admired was because a lot of that stuff started happening when after Majesty Crest was kind of over, like in the later 90s. Yeah. But I would stay in touch with Dan. And I remember when Dan was managing them, I remember saying, because this is what happened I to Majesty Crush, I actually advised Dan when he was managing Jack, I said, you know, the important thing, Dan, is, you know, for me as a journalist, people are gonna know about Jack because of the quote Detroit garage scene, but really he's a great songwriter who just happens to be playing in garage. Sure. <laughs> and it's what, um, it's what Dennis White used to say about Charm Farm. When you think of disco, the people who wrote the best disco were the established songwriters who are able to embrace the genre, yeah. work with it, and move on? Whether it was Roxy Music, David Bowie, of course, the Bee Gees, yeah. um, McCartney, Rod Stewart were able to work and do their best work within it. And I would say, you know, the later Majesty Crush, like it's, the songs like Sane and If JFA Were Still Together, those are much more influenced by like, Rage Against the Machine in just a much tougher, harder sound. Odell's drumming on JFA We're Still Together is one of the, I mean, it almost overdrives it. Dave Feeney just did the most amazing job recording that. Them against
5: you ever.
4: But that, to me, is got nothing to do with shoegaze proper. And it's what I said. The first time I was drawn to the Verve was that Voyager 1 EP where they do the song Slide Away, and you think you're listening to freaking When the Levee Breaks. It's okay. amazing. And I invite you to go hear it. It's only on YouTube because it was a live final EP back when that existed. But the point I'm making about the garage scene was I always encourage Dan to tell Jack, because I didn't know him directly. I mean, Meg was from Gross Point, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I met Jackson um, Smith and in. he was really good friends with my roommate in the late 90s. But it wasn't like I think Detroit sometimes gets pigeonholed for the style more than the songwriting. And what right. was so important for us as Majesty Crush is we were, I felt we were a band. In a pretty good band that happened to work really well in the shoegaze genre, much the same way the White Stripes worked well as songwriters. But you don't know how many times in New York. It was so funny because when I moved to New York, I got, I went and saw them open for Kid Congo from and uh, the and the um, whatever is the Birds band he was in. And uh, no, like White Stripes were big, but I remember everybody I went with, all these hip New Yorkers were like, it's a John Spencer ripoff. I'm like, no, dude, these <laughs> are some really cool songs. <laughs> and if there's a gimmick here, the gimmick, you know, you're know, you talking about a band that started, our band started with a three string guitar and a guitar player who would pick up the microphone and put it in the amps. So when Jack was going back and forth to the two different mics, yeah, I got it right away. Yeah. In Spawn Ranch, I mean, Meg drummed the way Odell drummed in Spawn Ranch. Have you ever heard a cover band try to do Seven Nation Army and (laughs) fuck up Meg's break? (laughs) They're always like, no, fucker." You have to tie one (laughs) arm behind your back and play from the soul. It's true. It's totally true. And that's why all along we were always like, of course. Whereas everybody's like, oh, this shouldn't work. It shouldn't work. Steve Jones out here was like, oh, I feel like I'm at one big sound check. <laughs> Did you ever hear that, that Jeff McDonald from Red Cross recorded the entire, I think, the, the still record or whatever? He recorded the whole thing and added bass lines to it. It's oh, terrible. yeah. It's uh, so uh, off. I'm like.
1: Red blood cells, I think he called it. Yeah. I think it, yeah, I think it was white
4: blood cells. Who cares? Record. Yeah. You yeah, yeah, don't I, I, uh, the Mona Lisa, <laughs> f- I didn't realize you had that connection to Dave Feeney either. Dave was, it's not a dark story, but we did our record, Love 15. And they, to totally their credit, Andy and Mike Neera said, we don't want to give you guys this sort of dated 90s sound. We want classic rock sounds. So you take all morning getting a drum sound. I wouldn't record my bass through a chorus pedal previously. They'd want a good tone they could work with. It didn't always work for us. We weren't used to a click track. And what happened was we were about halfway through the recording and we decided we'd done the best songs we could with them. But there was another side to it. Stuff like Space Between Your Moles and some of the more the, the stuff that wasn't as technical, should we say. And we pulled the record and we went, went back up to the temper mill with Dave Feeney, whom we've always been comfortable with. And Dave remains to this day. Um, and I can say this because he's so accomplished. Probably the easiest person to work with based on the fact that with the Orange Ruffies and what he did with um, Blanche. Yeah, Blanche, the slide guitar for Loretta, everything yeah, he's on, done. On Van or Rose. He never once, I got to share this with you. He's the one dude that never said, Well, let me get in on this. He never <laughs> did that. He was always <laughs> encouraging and respectful. He never said, well, I should jump in and help with this. He let us be us, and he was like a dad who was a fan. And he did a really good job because we were very shaken up by the major label recording process. Because, what was are these songs, do we like them as much as the EP versions? And, you know, the number one fan that's on the record is actually three different recording sessions. It's the new version recorded with the Niras in the White Room, Then it's, I believe, the vocal from the original Fanny P or Dave re-recorded the vocal at Smart Studios in Wisconsin with Butch Figs, drum tech, Doug Olson, who's the guy who mastered our record. And then when we got the original tapes back, Warren DeFever remastered it. And that's why, to me, it's got just such a great punch. He did a really good job of working with uh, compression to give it a very modern driving sound. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We were totally open to people helping us. And Dave Feeney was the one, you know, who was the most he and Mike Clark were the two people who worked with us at every step of the way.
1: That's not an uncommon experience from what I hear with major labels. I know that Go had the same problem with Sub Pop. You know, saying their demo versions were better in some cases,
4: or you yeah, the re-recording. So that dizzy, man. <laughs> Yeah,
5: that's
4: so. That's such. That's a big thanks, buddy. That's crazy. I'll go burn this money somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. If there's one thing I would offer for young bands, love your sound, but if somebody with more experience has a perspective, don't feel threatened by it. Embrace it for what it is. Yeah. You know, um, I think a lot of bands get intimidated because they're so used to hearing themselves in a certain context. And there's nothing wrong with thinking bigger and being bigger. It's like how, you know, a lot of bands go from being little jam. I mean, think about how the Chili Poppers went from being this tongue-wagging bunch of date-rapey assholes into basically really good songwriters and flea has emerged basically as i mean i don't even know how to read flea is a spiritual giant he's the leonard cohen of our time he'll be you know issuing missives from mount baldy he is one of the most beautiful (laughs) souls and all those guys are gorgeous now you know as far as just their humanity and stuff but it wasn't always like that you know yeah yeah we were always a very feminine band you know so we were always like feminine in the sense of if we played with another band we would sound a little like them or we'd borrow from them or we'd compliment them and we were always feminine in that we would listen to producers we would listen to people and we embraced it and that's something that was great dave was somebody the more attention he got the better he was at being himself it was gorgeous
5: yeah
0: well we want to talk a little bit about how you wound up reaching a larger audience. The story goes, number one fan picked up a lot of college radio airplay to the point where Dolly Records picked you guys up to flesh it out for Love 15. Was that album already in the works? I know you said it had been plucked maybe from a couple different places, but was it just a matter of going in and pillaging the fan EP and then fleshing it, it out? It was
4: actually the opposite. It was, it was what was so beautiful is our first singles were Sunny Pie and Chichialina, and then we did Grow, we did a series of Seven Inches, and then a the fan EP came out, and it had like Horse, which was about heroin addiction, and then we redid that for the record. So what it was very classic back then, you do an indie EP, it's a cute little record by a cute little band, but man, in the current climate, this might find a larger audience. So Dolly Chameleon was a subsidiary of Elektra. Our label mates were the guys who became queens of the Stone Age, Friggin' Lucinda Williams. Those were our <laughs> label mates. <laughs> wow. You know, like, we go to see Lucinda in New York. I'm in the bathroom at Lincoln Center, wherever the fuck, And a guy comes in with these huge, you know, <laughs> dressed in full Western gear with these huge things. And I'm pea shy. That's David Byrne. He comes out for the frickin' Encore. That's the world we were in, man. And the thing was... They were really smart. We had Bob Buziak was the head of the label, and he's like a huge like Clive Davis character. His one word of advice, you know, because you get to send him the DAT tapes every day, is just don't crowd the vocals. Don't crowd the vocals. This has to be something I can take to radio. Those are expressions back then that made most bands cringe, but we listened to that. We listened to the fact that when you hear a song on the radio, and radio was massive back then. You had eighty nine X. You had, like you said, college radio ruled the roost. We played New York. We got our label playing the New Music Seminar back when that was a thing. The CMJ conferences on our own, booking our own shows. And that was the beauty of the industry back then is there was a natural progression. Not every band did it well. I think we would get a C plus because a month after our record came out, our label folded. You know, Electra decided not to do deals. They picked up the guys who became Queen of the Stone Age. They didn't pick us up. This happens. A lot of bands that happens to. Yeah. We went on to do another EP. It was much harder, more aggressive. And Dave Feeney recorded it. And then it just kind of petered out, you know. And that was the thing is like, I think we better than most bands because we listened, were able to do what we needed to do to get to the higher level, which was record better, write better songs and make sure it could translate to a larger audience because it just didn't sound crappy. We didn't get in our own way. Yeah, And I was so proud of that. I'm so proud of like David and Michael. I mean, I know Michael like. It's really weird being in a major studio songs you're playing at 10 at night, half in the bag. Suddenly it's 10 in the morning. You're sitting around in your reading glasses, you know, burping up your Cheerios. It's just a weird experience, you know, making making rock and roll on a nine to five schedule. Is it time for our vitamins, gents? It's crazy. It's true. It's totally true. That that's what I'm saying. So yeah, I would you know what you were saying. We had the roots of it in the fan EP, but for the album, we recorded all this beautiful new stuff. We got was it Uma was on there? Boyfriend was the jam. Boyfriend was the yeah. big babes in Toyland <laughs> intro, and then the do 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 do, and Dave's vocals. <laughs> my God, they were like a grabbing by the gills. I mean, just David's <laughs> lyrics were like Rimbaud at that point. That's what I'm saying, man. This dude took this chaotic song and made it into this thing about trying to win a girl from a boyfriend. I thought that was beautiful. I want to jump ahead since you mentioned
3: boyfriend, and I want to point out, and these are fan questions. That's why I'm here, by the way. Your bass line in Boyfriend is indispensable, and Odell's drum pattern during the hook is is unforgettable that's the
4: drums from your wishes song isn't it <laughs> it's the same thing boom, boom, it is you sons of bitches <laughs> okay and, oh. then, and then
3: and then and michael michael's, i loved
4: you guys for a
3: <laughs> and then michael's guitar part is just so delicate and then finally Dave's beautiful melody and lyrics are insane do you remember the first time you heard him sing i can see you walking away Cause that is just, it's a sick moment when you hear that. I
4: remember time. it, but when the Niras put the echoing part of it in the studio and you're oh listening. Way, I can see you walking away, away, oh wait, oh yep. oh, I was like, we knew there was something here. Cause you could have awesome. played that. We could have sent that to Oswald, do a new chapter, a dub version of it. I could have listened to that, away, oh away, oh, oh, for like an hour. And the thing that was so weird is a lot of Dave's ideas, he was as proud of going, bought everything that you played on and number one fan. Mm -hmm. He purposely wanted to be kind of a rural stalkery voice. He wanted to have kind of like a, you know, like an unsophisticated, like everything that you played on. Missy, I'm gonna tell you right now, I love your music. He was so (laughs) proud of putting a Southern twang on that one word. (laughs) And we're all like, away, oh my God. And he's like, yeah, it's cool. What about in this line? Like, he was not somebody who did victory laps around every little thing. You know, wow. if anything, as anybody who knew David knows, he was so intense, full on, hilarious that that was just another, like, one of 30 genius deeds he would do in a day. You know what I mean? And that was what was so funny. I mean, now I listen to it and it's so bittersweet with his passing. But I've never been a bigger fan of David. I've always been his brother and his friend and his bandmate. But it was always inferred that you're a friend of your bandmates. And now I listen to it, like with my kids. And they're just like, Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, kind of. Because it's hard to really like your own shit. You know, it's like telling it's like sending people pictures to your kid. It's like, yeah, another chubby fucking baby. Okay, (laughs) you know, nobody cares. And it's true. It's really true. Have a kid and find out. Um, but that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Like, time, maybe not now. I'm like, oh, my God. Because that was just, to let you know, that song was recorded as a demo for the Love 15 record in the White Room studio as a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. So we recorded it kind of on the fly, because it does have the weird babes in Toyland part, and there's the weird time signature shift, or at least the, the yeah, tempo yeah. shifts. And we were just happy to pull it off. We thought we were, you know, again, it was kind of like a Metallica Master of Puppets thing with all the weird sideways parts. I'm probably the only person in the band that listened to that record, full disclosure. But the point is (laughs) that um, we were just like, God, we pulled it off. And then listening to Dave's vocal and the subject matter, we're like, of course, Dave's typical genius. I grabbed him by the gills. If you Google by the gills in like Rimbaud or... George Bataille novels, you know, it's an erotic reference. But the point is, Dave would just effortlessly, I'm at a dance, I'm at a jig, I'm going to blow to you, smile, you know, smile. I mean, it was like the whole thing was perfect.
3: Did you have any more of those moments while recording where you just, you know, you had something like with boyfriends? Yeah,
4: totally. The one that got me the most, to be honest, because it, it was kind of a throwaway song, was Pennies for Love. Mm-hmm. So, I was really listening to the chord progressions in Smells Like Teen Spirit. And of course, I'd always been a huge Pixies fan. And I enjoyed the way it was like, you know, it was like two parts that mirrored each other and just got more intense. It never changed anything. And this is when we were really starting to write more direct songs, so to speak, a little more straight ahead. And um, Dave was actually in jail all weekend. He fit the description on a Friday of a light skinned black guy in Indian Village that had been involved in robbing some lady unloading her groceries. Indian village is a vaguely rich area surrounded by not as rich area on the east side of Detroit. And we had a townhouse there and Dave just got thrown in jail and he had a weird relationship with his parents and he just wound up spending the weekend in jail as a possible suspect. And we're just like, Oh my God. And he gets out and the next practice, I'm trying to lighten the mood, but it's still kind of rock. So I was like, okay, da, 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 And he starts writing this song, you know, I'm saving all of my money. I'm saving my pennies too. It's not always for honey, but honey tastes so good. Sometimes I'm selling my body sometimes for less than a penny too. It's not always for honey, but honey tastes so good. So he's basically prostituting himself. So he can go get a hooker. He's writing this in a sugar coated, candy coated song called Pennies for Love. And it's the day he gets out of jail. (laughs) It's not the police. Right? You know what I mean? It's Pennies for Love. We were blown away. Like that is grace. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was a moment when we were surprised. The other one that was really, really cool was horse horse was great. And I'll tell you why we did two versions of it. It was specifically about a friend of ours who's encountering and dealing with heroin addiction and the whole story of horse, you know, there's a cherub at the door and he's come for a little more than just one. Look, it means it's the angel of death. And the song is meant to replicate with its tempo changes, like a heroin rush, kind of like I'm waiting for my man. But the fact that we did that on the fan EP and it was chilling, it was also three minutes long, three or four minutes long. And then we're like, we'll just re-record this. And we had forgotten a heavy song it was. And Dave on that fricking white room version that's on love 15 is like harrowing. I'll put it up against Three Days by Jane's Addiction, I'll put it up against any one of those really epic 90s rock songs that has like two or three parts that just, you don't land where you started with that motherfucker. And excuse my French, of course, this close to our Lord Sabbath. But the point is, is that that was a song where I was like, we're not going to top this. It's going to be pretty. Like Chichia was good in a big studio version. And I think it really holds up, but I think in our hearts we like the cute little seven-inch version, kind of like the way we love the cute little seven-inch Sunny Pie. But Jesus Christ, that version of Horse that's on Love 15 is to this day like, if I listen to it, I gotta like not listen to it, you know? Because it's just, and it's it's all true. It's like a we had friends that were like dying of heroin and like getting arrested and all this crazy shit. There's a
5: chance.
4: All of the other bands we played with were really cool kids, and they all kind of lived with their parents and were in college. And we came off as like, you know, Guns and Fucking Roses to them <laughs> because it was all like dirty and jail and drugs and crazy girlfriends and zaniness. But actually, I think that's what they loved about us is that we embraced them, kind of as their their sort of dirtier older brothers. But I just, you know, it's with the compilation shows is that every flavor of shoegaze was represented fully and completely by these little bands from Detroit and these little basements and these obscure little corners of a city that barely, barely created a platform for them. And the scene was almost by default, you know, like playing with Asha Vita or playing with spectacle. God, we did so many shows, spectacle, thirsty forest animals, all those bands that are on the thing and Wendy and Carl, my God, Wendy and Carl are like, it's worth writing a movie and filming it in your life just so you can have them do the soundtrack. I've never seen two people. I played in a band. We opened for low, and I kept thinking, Jesus Christ, Wendy and Carl got this way better. You know, it's like, I don't think people know how great Wendy and Carl is sometimes because every band that's ever tried to do what they do to me never
6: quite comes
4: up. But that's what I'm trying to say is it's like, now you realize how good that shit was. And that, wow, we did have those moments. We had those moments we were literally blown away. We just weren't, I don't know how to put it. At the time, I was like, cool, it's Tuesday. I got to go move my car. It's Detroit. It could get broken into. That was what was on your mind, <laughs> you know? It's And that happened quite a bit. We had cars stolen. We had vans broken into. Sure. I mean, it was just like, hey, yeah. ay So what about some
3: of your live moments where you had, almost an out-of-body experience. Like I, admittedly, I had asked Odell what it was like performing Feigned Sleep live, for example, because that song puts me in a trance listening to the recording. I can only imagine what those moments were like on stage, either in Detroit or elsewhere, where you were not only you had something, but you had that surreal experience on stage where you were all connecting and you felt the audience was connecting. Do you have any, uh, any reflections Well, Well, Fain, Fain
4: Sleep is totally one because it's just such an interesting song. It's the same bass line as When You're Sad by A.R. Kane, but I kind of thought of it like Christmas tree lights on a loop. And the way it, Dave set it up with the waves and what it's all about is you're in that half-asleep mode and you're with somebody you like and you're cuddling and cuddling might go somewhere else and you're both kind of trying to pretend you're asleep but you kind of notice you're playing footsies and maybe touchy this, touchy that and the feigned sleep is basically that you're both too nervous to make a move and what's beautiful about that song you know, the break, maybe we can go nuts is basically getting handed your jacket and leaving it's not a song about you know it's not it's baby it's cold outside well maybe just a little bit it's the opposite of that captures a feeling that anybody dating in obscure parts of Detroit in the early 90s knew, which was, you know, it's all fun and games, but it was kind of like you had a crush, but it was a very private moment of that. And playing that live was always kind of an exercise in not restraint, but it was kind of like more of a mood in a move and a back and forth than an up and down. And I realize that sounded a little princey, but the point <laughs> is, is that it's very... Um, I think the great you know we used to call ourselves the unrock of Detroit you know because it was just very natural for me to always default to kind of like a more feminine I mean you know people used to joke I used to throw my hair around or I'd play shirtless because that's where I was back then I had a lot of body image problems in my in my college years so when I got in shape I was really overly proud of it but the point is is that it was very passionate music that didn't have to be all about climaxes and crescendo that was really fun to play live was Cicciolino like when Cicciolino would take off Cicciolino is a star sitting naked in my car like Like, that's like the greatest line ever. Chichilina's a star sitting naked in my car. You know what I mean? That's like neck tattoo material right there. And the thing that's so, but what's so beautiful about that was when you would play it live, it was how we always thought that would go off. Like, ding, 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 And, oh, there's a lot. If you ever heard Crown of Thorns by Echo and the Bunnymen? There's a lot of, uh, or if you've ever seen a video of me playing Level Terrors Apart with uh, Peter Hook, there's a phrase people make when they're more excited than they know, and they go "ah," oh, and it can sound like it's a little <laughs> orgasmic. Dave was the king of singing in a way that was as passionate as it was good, and he could be pissed, like he would do. JFA was still together, and it was just like dark. You know, I mean, he would just be angry and yelly. And if you hear that song, the way his vocal cadence changes and the guitar changes on every verse, that was inspired by how he did these songs live. Something I actually am very proud of is it made to create something that where Dave could really excel.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Odell's a melodic drummer. He's a really good drummer. But what he never does, there's never a part in the Majesty Crush song that like steps on a vocal or seems to be getting in one more idea where the vocal idea was enough. And live, that was the funnest thing about playing in that band, was here's this fey little rock we playing in a basement. And somehow, with the addition of an audience and this perception that people are appreciating it, it just kind of flew off the page, often in spite of ourselves. And this is the one gig. If you're talking about the golden moment, here's the deal. The record comes out and promptly the label goes out of business. And we get booked at St. Andrews Hall. We don't have a record label. We don't have shit. We're getting DT, Ralph Valdez. There's still some hope, but we're definitely limping. And there were like five shows that night. There were other bands playing other places. And we're like, damn, St. Andrews Hall. And like we show up. It's like, who the fuck? What? Who's playing here? What is the deal? There's like four or 500 people there. Like people were, I'm going to go see Manage C Crush tonight. And not just people we knew were on the guest list. And we were honestly like, oh, my God. Like we don't have a record out right now. We're literally selling them from the boxes we picked up from the record company's offices in New York because we just happened <laughs> to be there. We have our own shirts. I'm selling out of a backpack. And the place is the most crowded it's ever been. And it wasn't about selling a record or getting on the radio. If anything, it was a big thank you note. As corny as it sounds, that was probably our best gig ever because it happened in spite of all, in a way, we were a band that was built by adversity and bullshit, but here was a gig that was happening as purely as it could because of the bullshit. You know what I mean? It was like it made us. I always say like, Majesty Crust was a band from Detroit that formed in the shadow of grunge and bullshit. And anybody (laughs) I say that to knows what I'm talking about. You know, because it was a lot of bullshit. I mean, what was great is like Amir Deza, the guy who booked industry and clutch cargoes and uh, St. Andrews loved us. His relationship to us was like how Joe Shanahan's was to the Pumpkins. He saw something special and put them on a lot of places mirror put us on all these gigs. He told our A&R guy we should be playing raves. He thought we'd be sort of closer to like an American version of the Stone Roses with songs like Chachialina and stuff. And if you've ever seen really early live Stone Roses, it's kind of right. Really melodic bass playing, really funky drumming, but not funky like in capital F, just really good rhythms, and a singer who's just not afraid to go nuts. You know, that's Dave's greatest line in Fain Sleep. Maybe we can go crazy. Maybe we can go nuts.
1: Now, wouldn't it be wild if that uh, couple from a while back that said they boned your music boned to feign
4: sleep? That would be just the best. (laughs) I I would. They probably have twins. One is named feigned and one is named sleep. (laughs) That's right. I feel like we played a role. We never overstepped our bounds. Big Chief was the band from Detroit that could reference Parliament Funkadelic and Beyond Sub Pop. They owned that. Sponge owned the grunge of radio play. Final Cut was on Network Records, Could tour with My Life with the Thrillco Cult and the guys from Ministry. We never overstepped our bounds. One thing I was really proud of was I don't feel like we competed with every band in Detroit. We complimented the bands that wanted to compliment us. The fact that Goober and the Peas would bring us on to go open up for them before Thanksgiving, they could have given that gig to anybody, anywhere. That's and Daniel so John Miller just blessed us. yeah. And that's what was so cool is I think people appreciated us more than people hated us. See God in each other, be positive. You know, if you're going to be a hater, you're going to get hated on. So I'm always like trying to like find something that's, you know, relatable about something, because if something's in front of me, that's because like God or the world put it there and it's there for me to consider not to dismiss. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like you get served food, you eat it. You don't go, ah, I could do better. You know, you don't do that. And that's what I've kind of come to find. I think Majesty Crush did that really inherently. Dave was always going out to After Hours bars, finding bands. Like, he'd invite Big Block to play with us. And Big Block was kind of like this Eddie and the Cruisers band, but they had Kenny Tudrick. They were actually really good. It just didn't really jibe with us. But fuck yeah, we'll do a gig with them, man. I mean, it's not that we wanted to play. It's just that we were open to it. And I think that was something that we did really well. When we did do our tour down at South by Southwest, we were playing in coffee houses and selling more CDs and shirts than we were at some of the booked gigs we were getting. Because people were like, who's this band playing in a coffee house largely on an open mic night? Because they can. Holy shit, this is pretty cool. And we were willing to do that. And I don't know a lot of bands that would. It wasn't like we were looking to jam all the time, but why not? Why not? Make it good, man. Make it good. Yeah. So speaking of uh, opportunities,
3: a Southeast of Saturn release, John Mosier was on on Friday, and he interviewed executive producer Rich Hansen, who, of course, you know, <laughs> and, and, and Dave Buick of Third Man as part of John Mosier's modern music show on WDET. Oh, and, my so, God. and so Dave Buick said that Rich had the idea for the compilation, pitched it to Dave, along with real Peter Hans, who liked it. And then the Nashville crew were into it as well. How were you guys approached about it?
4: Well, that's just a crazy-ass story. This all happened in a 72-hour period. It was about the second anniversary of Dave's death, I think. And I got an anonymous message over Facebook. I never check it. Usually, I was DJing on Sunday afternoons. And there was a subject line, I love your band. And it was an author from New Hampshire who wrote books about a zombie apocalypse. But it was a tennis pro-obsessed guy. His name is Mike Trask. And he loved Majesty Crush and referenced it in his book. And he wound up making us shirts. And I was like, wow. And the next message below it was, I think I have your masters. And it was a <laughs> housewife from Duluth, Minnesota, whose now deceased brother-in-law was Dave's roommate like 12 years ago. And Dave, when stuff started going off the thing, put the master tapes from Smart Studios in Wisconsin the love 15 mastered album on two inch tape in the closet and forgot about it. And then Dave went on to have a lot of things happen that ultimately led to his death and an officer involved shooting. But the point is that um, we're made aware that these masters exist that night. Stephanie Strotter sends an Instagram message saying, I don't know why this is hitting me right now, but I really want to write to Jack white and third man and say, they should put out David's music. Cause all of us were recoiling after Dave's death. We had, I mean, none of us could deal with it. None of us believed it was real. We all realized we'd missed a lot of time. There's a story there that we didn't all know. Dave's sister and I are very, very close. And it was just everything about it was painful. But she's like, God damn it. I want to send a message to him. That Monday, we get the thread from Rich going, guys, I had this idea. And we're like, are you fucking kidding? Stephanie's talking about reaching out the third man. The master's dropping our lap. And Rich is like, would you guys ever consider? And we're like, dude, this is happening whether we want it to or
0: not. You're supposed to play it cool in those moments.
2: Sounds like fate to me. Dude, we were like, tomorrow
4: we have the masters. (laughs) It got so crazy that there was an issue that we had two-inch masters, which was that's an old machine. And literally, in the course of talking to Rich about getting the masters and everything, Third Man opens a mastering studio with Warren DeFever, our mm-hmm. old buddy who we gigged with. All those live shows that you see from the Majestic Theater, those were playing with His Name is Alive. That was the same stage. That's part of the reason the sound's so good. They had like a million people in the band. But um, and it, it turns out Warren has a two-inch machine and he winds up mastering it. So the wow. masters fall into our lap. Dave's sister, who's Dave's voice now in spirit, had this idea, let's put it out on third man. And then we get an email from rich saying, Hey, third man may be interested. Yeah. And then it's like, well, that's cool. We've all these miracles, but it is two inch tape. Boom. Third man opens a mastering studio with a two inch machine (laughs) serendipity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wild. That's it. Serendipity, man. (laughs) This first first word I learned (laughs) in seventh grade English class, an unlooked for loveliness in the day, Or as I put it, an unexpected pleasure and the nun bitched at me because I second-guessed her. But the (laughs) point is, is it was completely serendipitous. And that's the thing about this. This is happening in spite of all of this. I may sound like a smooth whatever, whatever, whatever. I can't believe any of this is happening. It almost shouldn't. And I don't say that negatively. (laughs) I say it because we didn't really do a lot for this. What we did was be present. What we did was take advice and help. What we did was listen to people and everything fell into place, period. Yeah. The yeah. only thing I screwed up on is when I thanked everybody. I got, I got Roe, Peter Hans, mixed up with the architect, Peter Hans Roe, because <laughs> I'm from that era. <laughs> I think that might have pissed them off. I'd say to him in his native Dutch, lekker meter based in," which means let's just forget about it and go to the zoo and have fun. But uh, (laughs) the point is, I mean, obviously, there's nothing more beautiful than when a plan comes together, especially when it involves a singer who's passed under tragic circumstances, a record whose masters were lost, and a band that lost their record deal. And we're talking about this right now. And as you hear, we are as big of fans, obviously, of all these other bands and they are like our little brothers in some cases our big brothers. But the point is, is that these are all names. We used to joke with each other, you know, the thirsties, thirsty forest animals. You know, we, whenever they'd come around, we'd make a joke. I feel suddenly parched, you know, kind (laughs) of like they're here, you know? And we had this whole little internal humor that all bands do, but we're like, nobody's ever going to give a shit about this stuff, you know? And it's like, Holy shit, you know? And as you know, like Andrew Peters from Thirsty Forest Animal, he works for Facebook, you know, and it's like, damn, you see some ads popping up. And that's what's beautiful, too, is in a grown-up world, it's like people love these records. People love the artwork. They love the memories. They love that it's like an object. It's a cohesive. It's like having a cup of tea in the afternoon or lighting a fire to sit by. It's got that kind of quality to it. And I feel like this kind of music really does that perfectly. Yeah. It's just headphone rock.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a beautiful way I think we'll lead the discussion today. I did want to thank you again for joining us. And speaking of David's passing, if anyone is interested in reading this, I highly recommend it. You wrote a lovely, heartfelt, and wonderful obit for him. And one of the lines that stuck out to me in that obit was, to know David was to accept him. I thought that was really, really beautiful, just as a sentiment, because at that time, particularly, you know, the world wasn't quite such a progressive place, but boy, he was living that life and he was inhabiting that spirit. And the band did that too. So we really want to thank you for bringing that spirit with your music. And we're just really excited that it's being brought to a whole new audience with Southeast of Saturn. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today.
4: No, man. Thank you guys so much. And The Atmeg Astronauts, man, thanks for your record as well. <laughs> and what hey, I mean by that is it's you. a continuum. We're going to have discussions like this. There's more records are going to come out. There's more beautiful things to share and enjoy and be complimented by. And there's fun little questions we can ask each other. Hey, how'd you get the drum line for, wait, well, how'd you get the drum line for, you know, that's yeah. what it used to be about. And that's what this is really doing. And I'm just, I mean, I, I am, I'm a little emotionally spent now because was kind of a lot, but, you know, first of all, thank you. But thank you that this exists and these are the kinds of things, you know, I know I'm so inspired by this to go want to, I, I'm, I was a journalist by trade. I wrote the, the Insane Clown Posse's autobiography and it wasn't a coloring book. I'm really good at helping people find their voice. And I feel like this is this whole experience is about that. It's about getting a voice heard and a voice appreciated and getting a voice accepted. You know, what you said about David, I always said he was our gift of fire. He really was. But to know him was to accept him. And that's the thing. And this is just such a beautiful next addition to his legacy to us all. I just want to say thank you. Thank you to Third Man. Thank you guys for putting this together and thanks anyone who is curious or whatever, you know, I'm all over every social media. I'll answer any question. I just love that people love things and I love loving it along with you.
1: Yeah. What a beautiful way to end this. Thank you. You have a way with words.
4: So, well. Wow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the gift of gab is the gift that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a blast. Okay, guys. <laughs>
0: Well, that was wonderful. Now, next up, would our friends from Atmeg like to tell us who we're talking to next?
2: This is Wendy and Carl. All right, (laughs) let's (laughs) do it.
0: Well, we would like to welcome, we're proud to welcome, I should say, Wendy and Carl here. Thank you so much for joining us on the Third Men podcast.
7: Oh, you got it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. So we're really excited. You guys are included in the new Southeast of Saturn compilation that is giving kind of a snapshot of the Detroit area shoegaze scene from the early to mid 90s. But you guys have been making music consistently just, you know, for the past, what, 25 years or so? Uh, a lot of Oh,
6: releases. my Because we started in 93.
7: Our first single came out in 1993. I started doing music on my own in 92, and then Wendy was like, hey, I should... I think I have some ideas. I'm like, please
0: join me. Amazing. So we're really excited to talk to you. And we're also really thrilled that you guys were able to become a part of that Third Man Records release. We'd also like to welcome our friends from After the Money is Gone, Julia and Tobias. Hi, guys.
2: Hello. Hi, guys.
0: Hello
2: there. Hello.
0: (laughs) Thanks for helping put this together. You guys are wonderful. We love After the Money is Gone. We love the record that you guys put out, which was pressed on Third Man Pressing. Is that right?
2: That's
0: true. Yep. So we're all one big tangential family. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So before we get into Southeast of Saturn, growing up learning about music, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your influences, because while we know your music to be very atmospheric, ambient kind of sound, I was wondering what brought you there? What helped shape that? Was it a combination of maybe the UK Shoegaze scene? Was it you were really into Brian Eno? I mean, like, what were some of the things that you were listening to that wound up f- forming your musical style?
6: Well, first, I'll address the Brian Eno thing, which is that people kept saying to us, they would bring up Brian Eno, whether it was in a review, or it was in conversation. And Carl and I would look at each other. And we were so incredibly confused. Because <laughs> in the first couple years that we were doing music, Brian Eno, in our head, was part of Roxy Music. We were really familiar with the Babies on Fire album Mm. and the work that he had done with U2. And so I couldn't figure out how we were doing this atmospheric music, and people kept throwing Brian Eno in the mix because I was hearing you know, wild screeching guitars and (laughs) super pop songs that were on the radio. And it wasn't until many years later that we heard Another Green World and went, okay, first of all, what Brian Eno did is a hundred times better than anything we could ever accomplish. And so, now we're just plain embarrassed. And two, wow, Brian Eno did some really amazing stuff. Uh, but it was it was I'm really like, confusing. I need to, we need to
7: investigate this Brian Eno guy a little more because maybe he's making some music we could actually uh, you know, get into that we weren't aware of. Right. I think we were listening to more mud hunting, you know, when people were like, hey, you must like Brian Eno. I'm like, well, I like my honey. I don't know about where you, that guy. <laughs> <laughs>
6: um, we came to the place of creating music through, uh, I'll try to make it sort of concise. As kids, we both loved music. Our earliest memories in life were of listening to music. Our siblings played records for us all the time. We were going to the store and buying records by the time we were six or seven years old. When we met each other, we had various bands in common that we really liked, which included the Chameleons. (laughs) to a ton of concerts together. We immediately started buying records together and spending time with friends and just listening to music all the time. And when we started making music, we listened to as much, I would say, equal parts of classic rock, being Jimi Hendrix and Neil Young, sub-pop bands, which would cover things like Dinosaur Jr., Codeine, and Mudhoney. And then groups like Verve and the Teenage Film Stars and My Bloody Valentine. Mm.
7: Slow Dive and Galaxy 500 especially, too. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, So you mentioned what you were listening to when you met, but how did you guys meet? And did you start playing music early on after meeting, or was it an epiphany that came on later?
7: We met because Wendy worked in a record store, and I was a record store junkie when I was younger, before I knew her, and... She happened to be in in a mall record store working, the only mall record store in probably the whole area that actually had really good music, and it was because Wendy was responsible for a lot of that coming in. Our taste in music were different. I know when I was growing up, I listened to, I was a child of the 70s, so I was like listening to nothing but 70s pop songs, and I liked a lot of like classic rock at the time. then I think when I was 15 years old, I was in ninth grade or something, and someone brought an Iron Maiden record to class. (laughs) <laughs> and that was like one of the first things that changed me away from everything else that I knew. Yeah. Even though we don't ever sound like Iron Maiden at all, but they were you know, one of the first bands, I think, that kind of influenced me to, to do what I wanted to do.
6: To want to play guitar. Yeah, to want to yeah. play
7: guitar, absolutely, and Jimi Hendrix.
6: Wow. Um, and my mom started taking me to concerts when I was 11, so um, between 11 and 15, I had seen The Jesus and Mary Chain, The Smiths, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, Shriek Back skinny puppy i can remember i heard about einstra and the jesus and mary chain on cnn headline news shockingly (laughs) enough
5: because once upon
6: a time cnn had you know every half an hour at the end of the half an hour like twice a day they would do a feature on the arts (laughs) and so i was probably 13 and i heard about both of those bands because of cnn and went out, and I used to shop at School Kids Records in Ann Arbor. And that's a half an hour story unto itself of me shopping at School Kids, which Bruce Adams, who eventually formed Cranky Records, Bruce Adams was working there. So Bruce was selling me records when I was a super young teenager, and when we finally got signed to Cranky, that was Bruce's label. My world is very tiny.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned Skinny Puppy. I hear that name reverberating in so many creative people that I know. That band has had quite the ripple effect on the creative hive mind, if you will. I hear that as a, uh, if not a background, you know, grown up listening to them or, you know, listen to them quite a bit while doing creative work. I hear them as an influence quite a bit.
6: (laughs) I don't listen to them now. Yeah. I don't know that I can listen to them now. <laughs> they
7: were very <laughs> important at the time, though. Yeah, they
6: were important at the time. I could listen to the Smiths still all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love Johnny Myers' work with Brian Ferry and with the, the But I cannot put on a Skinny Puppy record and, <laughs> and keep a straight face. I'm like, I'm like, this is so over-the-top theatrical and... More than I want to be dealing with, <laughs> um, but at, you know, when you're 15, that was I. It was great. Yeah.
7: doesn't seem as serious now, going looking back on it, um, but at right, the time, yeah. it seemed kind of fun. Yeah.
2: Well, I'd just like to know kind of the dynamic of your relationship in the creative process. Like, is it hard to have objectivity in, like, coming up with new ideas? Is there any, like, yes, honey kind of <laughs> stuff going on? Or um, is it pretty open and honest with the flow of creativity between the two of you?
6: I can very specifically remember one time that Carl had written a piece of music, and I was like, What is this? This is terrible. And he Which just, one was that? And he just, it, it's the song that turned into universal energy. Okay. And he looked at me, he was like, What? And of course, it didn't occur to me that I was being mean. Yeah. I had been listening <laughs> to him make pieces of music that I was completely in love with for years. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this thing that I just didn't. it it just didn't work for me at all. And I (laughs) I was like, no, 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 it really should sound like this. And so then I started humming Mm -hmm. and he taped me humming and then he kind of rewrote the guitar and it turned into this song that we actually have people that have become our friends through the years before they were our friends, they wrote to us and said, you know, we got married to that piece of music. Um, Or, can you please come and perform in our wedding and play that piece of music? And so I guess there was something about the change that was important. there's like three ways that we write stuff one of us will start a piece of music and the other one will join in later or we sit down together and god knows where the sound comes from it just channels through us and it's there Mm -hmm.
7: Hmm. it's kind of all over the place Mm -hmm. that you know how it happens
2: but you guys really trust each other and each other's opinions and you're not afraid to say like that kind of sucks. <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and you know, you, you get over that if you're like, you know, like your ego's bruised a little bit. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> oh, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, that's okay. I, I'm like, I, I, I can definitely improve on it, mm-hmm. you know, or something can change, and you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make it
6: work. We will push each other so that the end result is as good as we can hear it's supposed to be. Mm. But traditionally, that's done with. Um a lot of love and kindness mm-hmm. and not a lot of this sucks and it needs to be redone. Mm-hmm. There's really that only that one time that I can remember in twenty-seven years that I was like, dude, this just has to be done over. Yeah.
7: Right. And that's okay.
0: <laughs> that's a surprisingly healthy creative relationship you have there. My God. I feel like not many people could say that.
6: <laughs> I agree. <laughs>
0: Your sound and your contribution to music, I mean, when I told some people that we were going to be talking with you today, particularly people who were a fan of shoegaze at that time, they were like, wow, those, Wendy and Carl, those guys, they were the influencers. They were the ones that really paved the way at the time, at least, you know, from an American perspective of what that sound really was. Uh, a friend of a friend, Jason Lamoureux of The Corrupted Oh yeah, City.
7: something somewhere cold, I think, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. You described you as masters of the dreamy ambient. And I thought that that was a wonderfully apt way to put it. And, you know, even when looking at your album art, there is a painterly, obviously, a lot of it is paintings and mood art feel to what you do. I was wondering, do you ever have a visual component in mind when you're constructing a piece of music, especially the kinds of music that you make, which is very much trying to evoke a feeling, almost like classical music in a way. Do you ever have a visual in mind when you're writing?
7: Oh, boy. I don't, I don't know if I really have a visual in mind. I, I kind of, you know, I'll, I'll play a bit, and then, you know, if I find something that I like the sound of or, you know, a couple of changes, and I'll work with that. And, you know, it usually takes both of us to make something happen, you know, to, yeah. to really put something together.
6: Occasionally, when I'm writing words i will see things so um we did a 10 inch on the ochre records label in 1997 and the first side is a dream of blue and the second side has a song called kate and um i can remember laying on the floor writing the words and seeing ships on the ocean like in the 1700s you know old pirate ship sort of things and big crashing waves and the story developed from the images that were coming into my head.
7: visual creation artist than, than I am. I find things that I like the sound of and the emotion and the feel, but I see stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <guess> when <Whitney> he <laughs> sees the things and I, and I feel, and then we kind of like throw it together. And usually we're pretty happy with what we do.
1: I mean, the music itself does evoke images in one's head, though. I mean, it's a very ethereal kind of thing. Maybe that's just being a visual artist. But when I hear music, especially your music, Patterns do come into my head and swirls and that sort of thing. So thank you for the hallucinations is what I'm saying.
5: <laughs> 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 I was about
1: to say, James, you might want to see a
5: doctor. I
0: think that's <laughs>
2: it's funny. We were just listening to the new album just now. And I was telling Tobias that I don't do drugs. But if I did, this is what I'd want to listen to. <laughs>
6: well, no thank you. Um, that it's is definitely a compliment. That is the exact opposite of... Many many years ago <laughs> there was a a newspaper in the Detroit area called the Jam Rag and uh we would send out seven Damn inch rag. singles and we would send out cassettes and we would try to get reviews in the local papers and, oh
7: yeah we would send our early things anywhere we uh, could just to have somebody write no matter what they had to say it didn't matter
6: and so, Tom Jurek was really nice to us. He wrote for the Metro Times, and he was the first person that ever said, we made him think of the Derudy column, which um, they're my favorite ever band. So I that think was... Wendy
7: danced around for a month after reading that
6: one.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I, like, uh, I didn't even mean to sound like them, and he thinks we sound like them a little bit.
6: <laughs> but the other side of that is we had this review in Jamrag where this guy talked about how um, he did all of these heavy metal reviews. Yeah, if
7: you know Rag, you know what they were about. And then much.
6: he then he got to us and he said that it was boring, it he irritated said, him.
7: Lame and boring would be good if I took drugs, but I don't, so I don't like this. <laughs> like well, at least he gave us like a couple sentences. And then, then like the next record I think he reviewed was like some like thrash metal band. He's like, "Now this is the
5: shit." <laughs> and,
7: like, thanks for putting us right there. That, that's like was one of our highlights from when we would send out press kits and stuff. <laughs>
1: Now, Scorpion, there's a band that's, they're going to go down on a legacy like Beethoven.
3: (laughs) Uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, well, actually, I wanted to know what mall and record store that uh, you met at. I'm curious which one, but I also wanted to go into some of the places that you gigged in the early 90s and anything interesting that comes to mind about any particular venue or the crowd or other bands that you played with.
6: Uh Was
7: it Record Town?
6: I worked at Record Town. In Southland Mall. In Southland Mall. In,
7: in Southland, Michigan.
6: And so then the, the next part, it was in Taylor. Taylor, that's right. Oh my word, I was born and raised in Taylor. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what that means or why I say it with such disdain, <laughs> Taylor has oftentimes been referred to over the past 40 or 50 years as Taylor Tucky. Because because there were a lot of people who lived in the city who had moved up from down south and had jobs in the auto industry. And pretty much on a regular basis, there are still parts of Taylor where you can go and somebody has their pickup truck completely taken apart on the front lawn. (laughs) Um, and they're still, you know, bringing up moonshine from down south and having giant parties on the weekend, and yeah. So I had never had a job, and I was at the mall, and my mom was like, well, you're 16, where do you want to work? And I was like, I want a job at the record store. Yeah, pick a place in
7: the mall to work. (laughs) And she
6: was like, well, let's put in an application there. And I said, they're never going to hire me. I don't have any experience. But I put in the application anyway, and then I got this phone call from a woman named Cherie Davis, and many years later I discovered that Cherie's husband, Frank Davis, was Bruce Adams from Pranky Records, was Bruce Adams' roommate when they were um, going to school together at U of M, which is, my world is very tiny. <laughs> um, and Cherie ended up calling me, and she was like, come in and interview for this job. And I got in, and she started asking me about... Music And she and I had gone to, even though I was only a teenager, because my mom kept taking me to see all these bands, she and I had gone to all of the same shows at St. Andrew's Hall and all over Detroit, and we liked the same bands. And she was like, you know, I called you because you have a really high grade point average. And nobody who applies at the record store ever has good grades. You know, we get like all of the burnouts and the drug addicts and stuff. And so you have a brain and I would like for you to come and work with me. And so I I got hired at this mall record store and um, I was awkward and weird and I hated talking to people. And it was, you know, I loved the music, but I hated dealing with people. Sounds like a perfect fit. I've been to a lot of record uh, stores. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! I, you know, I was there a little more than a year. I had—I was just barely 17, and this really cute guy came in one day, and I was like, "Wow, okay, I can't talk to people, but I could go talk to him because he's really cute." And um, and that's how I met Carl.
7: And here's me looking at Skinny Puppy and Bauhaus records, and it's like, wow. And the
6: Swans, you know. Because I, I like the swans, cacto twins,
7: swans, stuff like yeah.
6: So that's that.
1: I love that you had a Taylor Tucky because in Pennsylvania we have a pencil Tucky. I'm now wondering, does Kentucky have a like a a, a New England or a Northern <laughs> contemporary to all of these
7: names? Is there? They have a very wide influence apparently over much of the Midwest and to the East area. Yeah.
6: Well, I I would guess that if we did a little bit of research in a very similar way to the patterns where blues musicians ended up in Chicago and Detroit, I would guess that wherever there was industry that was going to pay people like heavy-duty factory work, that was going to pay people a regular wage that they could raise their family on, that's where you'll find people from Kentucky. That sounds about right. That it was like a, a natural migratory pattern. That's a
1: far more refined answer than I was expecting from my dub joke. Yeah. I, I actually appreciate that quite a bit. That's... Sorry,
6: that's the, way, that's, that's the way my brain works. No,
1: that's, that makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask if
0: Kentucky has a sub-Kentucky and if there's a repeating pattern of smaller Kentuckys all the way down until it's just one guy pissed off sitting in a
7: rocking chair or something. It's a
0: tessellating
2: pattern. It's awful. <laughs> well,
6: that's that's possible, too. Property, yeah.
1: There's a Kentuckian and a Kentuckavania, it's it's really weird.
2: Yeah, I live up in Ferndale, and we have Hazel Park just next door, and we call it Hazel Tucky. Hazel yep. Tucky
5: yeah.
6: yep.
7: So was your first gig in Taylor Tucky?
6: Uh, no,
7: <laughs> no, this is... Yeah, no, go, Carl, go ahead. Can,
6: Carl can tell that story. Oh my gosh,
7: so so um, when we first started trying to get a band together or whatever, we had a, a friend who was actually our, our cable guy. That's a great start. Oh, Skippy. His name was Skippy.
6: (laughs) His name was John. his, His name was John, but his nickname was Skippy. And Okay, so I started at Record Town in Taylor, and then I moved to Harmony House, which was in Dearborn Heights. And I worked with this guy named John, who we all called Skippy. When he left Harmony House, he became... A cable guy, and then
7: he, he showed up at our house one day. I was like, well, "You yep. just were used to work at Harmony House." He's like, "Well, I'm doing cable now, so here I am to install so, your cable or whatever."
6: He was in a band called Marilyn's <clears throat> Bath Dance, and he knew that we were making music, and he wanted to help us get out and start playing shows.
7: So he finally badgered us long enough when we finally agreed and <laughs> whipped up something, and we played it. Uh, at this classic bar in Westland, Michigan called the Studio Lounge. Oh, which was we call
2: Westland Wasteland. Kind of
7: like a, a Kentucky inspired kind of place. You might find people from Taylor there or you never know. I mean it was a lot of regulars in there, shall we say. And so we went and played our, you know, simple droney music or whatever and I think we had three of our friends with us to come see us and probably about a dozen regulars. My it was, mom in, and middle, it was the them. middle of the week and you know, we we got heckled and stuff, and you know, like where's the drummer? like yeah, yeah. Where's the drummer? Like before we even started, I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then, like third song into it, you know, we got the the free bird calls, which I'm like, that's what I expect from a place like this. So bring it on, you know. <laughs> this is how it's going to be. Then that's okay. So th- we we did that.
6: We, we did that, and, then... <laughs> and it was kind of fun, but kind of like, really, is this what this is all about? Yeah. Shortly after that, I can remember playing at. Paychecks Ham-tramic in Hamtramck. We played the Hamtramck Pub a couple oh, of times. Sorry, I, That's get the, okay. I get the two of them confused. That's uh, right. But I can remember playing with Ashavita, and that being really, really fun because yeah, because were... Eric was a great guitar player, and Jesse was an awesome drummer, and Craig would get all crazy while they were playing, and I can remember him singing T Rexes. I was dancing. Mm. Nice. Uh, I was dancing by
7: myself mm. when I was eight, or whatever. And I was yeah. dancing when I was, 12, when I was twelve, or
6: whatever. Um, and then, shortly after that, we all started playing shows at Zoots. And so, we did lots of shows with Ashavita and Monoral at Zoots. And what I remember of those shows, I have very fond memories of them visually and orally, because there's this really neat thing that happens when you're young where you're willing to be more experimental and you're willing to have more belief in what it is that you're doing because you're not jaded yet, you're not cynical, and nobody has told you that you suck. And so you just get up and play this music that comes from this amazing place and you're unbridled. And so at that point in time, to do shows with Monoral and Ashavita, they were very unbridled and very free in their performances and the music was out of this world it was really fantastic
7: We just first single came out before we had uh, any ideas. people put a record out and they ended up getting uh, a show at St. Andrews Hall opening up for somebody that I can't remember who it was. And so then we were like, we just decided we had to play. We did Hamtramck Pub, Suits Coffee House, The Zone yeah. in Dearborn was another big place we yeah. played at until they were closed down for illegal <laughs> activities, shall we say? We
6: don't have to talk about that.
7: <laughs> I think what, what really happened, are we put out a, a cassette tape called Portal like 1995 or 94. Yeah. And um, someone who had a college radio gig had heard it. He's, he, someone called us up and said, hey, my friend played me part of your song on the phone and I want to put it out on CD and I want to help you get some shows. So he hooked us up playing in New York City at Brownie's. We got, like, a special feature in the CMJ College Music Journal magazine. Nice. And we got, like, a really nice, you know, college radio music night in Chicago at the Metro. And so, like, after having, like, these, like, really, like, forgetful local shows and, like, dive bars or whatever, next thing you know, we, like, got a couple of really nice things that encouraged us to keep on going that there was more to it than playing. Well some of it encouraged
6: line. us. Some of it was like playing at CMJ at a place that used to be a oh, we
7: did CM we did that a too. Oh, my
6: God. <laughs> plant. What the hell
7: is that place called? The Cooler. The
6: Cooler. So we've played at this place in New York City called the Cooler. And the owner was notorious for not paying mm-hmm. ban. And so it ended up being, I don't know, like three in the morning. And I was literally fighting with this man out in front of the bar over the fact that he hadn't paid us. Like,
7: you know, like 150 bucks or who knows what it was. It wasn't that much money, I'm sure.
6: But at the same time, when it's 1995 and yep. you've got to pay for gas, and you yeah. took three days no off work because you were going to go to New York City and play at a festival, you know, 150 bucks really was a lot of money. I will say I've had a lot of arguments with people over money who didn't want to pay us at the end of the night or... We did a European tour with the Silver Apples, and a chunk of that was really amazing, and a chunk of it was very difficult. Yeah. And arguing with the man who was financially responsible for things at the end of that tour, that was that was a fascinating experience. We were in Amsterdam. He figured that he could just get me really high, and I wouldn't pay any attention to what was going on financially. And he showed up at the club, the Paradiso, and... Um, And he was like, hey, you know, we should party and you should smoke with me and all this other stuff. And I was like, no, because we have finances to talk about. (laughs) He was like, but, and I was like, no, you're not getting me wasted. So you can just take all the money that we just made on these shows. We legitimately have finances to talk about. And he was really frustrated by that. I think that was his M.O., get people really wasted and then take all the money that they made on the road and leave. So... While I truly love making music, and I love it being expressive like that, I can't say that the live thing is that easy, Mm -hmm. especially because there are so many people who are looking to take advantage of bands who are playing live. Yeah. That's, That's the frustrating part of the business to me.
1: It's sad. I know a lot of musicians who are starting out and a lot of venues do take advantage. But what I wouldn't give to have that early 20s aggressive invincibility feeling again.
7: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, when, 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 when we did our big European tour, Wendy was, you know, we had a lot of gear to carry and Wendy was put in charge of managing, basically. So she was thrown to the lions <laughs> to deal with everybody about money. And food. And food. Yeah.
6: Would, which is, which I, is
7: like more work than than like playing music. Yeah, she, she was...
6: But I kept she, it all together. We yeah. got paid and we definitely ate and that was important. So I'm not sure who you have already interviewed for this series of podcasts and, and it really doesn't matter. I am sure that at various points in interviews that people have done for this comp, it has come up that I can be really hard to get along with or that maybe I am, uh, I'm sure there's been a lot of salty names and adjectives used when it came to describe me, but I don't like to put up with crap from people, and I, you know, what I really want is to make beautiful music and be creative and... I'm also very headstrong and bossy and that doesn't go over so well all the time. You're the first in the series so we have not heard that. But Let me tell you.
0: If somebody tries to tell me that I'm going to I'm going to start a fight, <laughs> yeah. okay? You
7: you are armed with uh, information. It takes. Yes. Yeah.
0: I also want to say, you know, your the experience you guys went through. I mean, these experiences I, I'm sure are fairly commonplace in the music business, and it's like the darker side of things. And I'm sorry you had to go through that, but I think being assertive and strong it clearly served you well. And like you said, you got
7: paid at the end of the day. And yeah, we, we made it home alive, and you yeah. know, that's all that really mattered in the end. Like, when, when am I? Can I go home? And like, how long? It's a coin of phrase. Home, there's only. Like two
0: things I don't like in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. So you know what? Those people from Amsterdam,
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> they
5: had it coming. <laughs>
2: oh, you know, Wendy, it's really funny that you say that because the people that we've talked to have had nothing but great things to say about you guys. Like, oh. the word around town is that people love you guys. You've
7: talked to all the right people, it sounds.
2: <laughs> no, really, we, we just really recently ran into somebody, and, um, yeah, they were like, oh, do they still have their record store? And we love them, and, yeah.
7: W- Wendy's always been the den mother, I think, <laughs> of, of everybody. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's a few people who kind of, you know,
3: whatever. Before the record, toward the end their Paycheck would not only pay musicians... But he would also not pay the utility bills.
2: Yeah. My, <laughs> well, my first terrific. show with Atmeg was at Paychecks, yeah. And uh, by a miracle, I stayed. But yeah, you know, we, <laughs> we didn't even know.
7: I, I don't think we we actually played Paychecks, but I used to drag Winnie to Paychex a band called the Orange Ruffies before we had our own band, before we did our own music. And she borrowed someone's ID just to get into the Paychex. You wouldn't have
2: needed it.
6: I think the, they were letting oh, us in. No, it didn't <laughs> matter. No.
2: And I'll yeah, yeah, yeah Paychecks
6: this a little bit so when Carl and I met each other I am younger than he is and I was still in high school so I was 17, and he'd be like, I really want to go to the bar and see the Orange Ruffies. Oh and so, um, <laughs> the, you know, the bar didn't, paychecks didn't really care about what your ID said as long as you had an ID. Yeah. And I would be, I would go to a girl that I was in school with and say, hey, I need to go to the bar this weekend and see this band with Carl. He could show them a
7: blank piece of paper and they'd let you in, I think. She'd
6: hand me her driver's license, and I'd use it for the weekend, and we would go and see the Orange Ruffies, <laughs> which I have several different times, I have told Dave Feeney, In a public forum that he is responsible for me and Carl being together and I say that because the orange ruffies cited the chameleon as one of their influences and so that is how Carl heard about the chameleons and when Carl and I met each other and he knew who the chameleons were that was a really big deal to me because only a couple people that I knew had any idea who the chameleons were, so here I meet this boy who's not only cute but he likes the chameleons. I was like, oh, that's perfect, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so the story of Carl and his love for the orange ruffies and his respect for Dave Feeney is is long and marvelous. Um, but I always tell Dave, I'm like, you know, it's it's your fault. You talked about the chameleons and you got Carl to like them and (laughs) I didn't know anybody else who even knew who they were. So that's how we got together.
1: (laughs) That's the best. Music does that sort of thing. When you have a shared musical connection like that, it's like, oh, oh, this person's the best. Like my, my (laughs) wife and I, on the, uh, the first day we met, I put on Zeppelin three and she's like, oh man, I love this album. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes. You are the, you are the (laughs) That's a very good start. (laughs) Yes.
2: So. It can be a deal breaker sometimes.
6: <laughs> yes, yeah, because some people like, you know, music is non-judgmental. We like True. what we like, but then we look at each other and go, "Ew, what you like is gross." <laughs> so yeah, that, o- only that, some that, of it you know, is not all. That... <laughs> oh no, and I'm not necessarily talking about me and Carl. Okay, I'm talking about, um, <laughs> you know, like if somebody really loves uh, Neil Young and they meet somebody they like, and that person says, you know, oh, I only listen to the Dixie Chicks, right. um, it, it might be problematic.
1: I'm just a David Crosby man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you guys mentioned earlier that a couple got married to one of your songs. Who have you been surprised that has come out to you as fans
6: of yours that, like, is just surprising to you? Uh, Michael Shaban. He is a famous writer, and he actually is the man who is writing the Star Trek-Picard series. But he has done, um, he's done a bunch of novels. One of them is called Telegraph Hill, and he has thanked us and Stars of the Lid in the liner notes as being music that he will put on to turn off the rest of the world yeah. so that he can work on his, on his books. Um and that's really surreal to me. I'm like, okay, here's this man that's writing this super popular, really worldwide known television show, and here's this man that we watched do a fantastic interview like a roundtable interview with Getty Lee. Um and he's talking about listening to our records. That that blows my I mind. love Crazy. how
1: Picard got yeah. a bigger pop than Getty Lee on a music podcast. <laughs> uh, I
5: just <laughs>
0: I am so, so excited for you guys. I'm just catching a contact high from that. Uh, I mean, we're talking about drugs <laughs> a lot this episode. It's weird. I am catching a contact, like, excitement. That's amazing. Fantastic. Oh. He seems like that kind of guy, though. He's, he's like a chill dude who's very thoughtful. He's approaching the show with a reverence to the past, but an eye toward the future. And that's kind of your whole deal anyway, so I get it.
6: <laughs> you know... It's hard to talk about the music that we make. Sometimes I tell people that there's the person I am most of the time and then there's the person I am that makes music. I shield the artistic side of myself a lot. It isn't always easy to have somebody say well you know why do you write this way and why do you do these things and what do you get out of it because to a certain extent, I can take a deep breath and go, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, I'll, I'll become far too aware of allowing myself to feel naked like that. And then I kind of clam up. And I have the same problem when we try to play shows. I, to this day, have debilitating state. Yeah, I, I
7: think we, we both get very nervous um, live performing if it's like two people or 200 or wherever it's at yeah
1: you put yourself in a vulnerable place it's tough it's
7: an it's not a controlled environment so it's it's a lot more you know a lot more difficult for us to really get into it sometimes I guess I don't know
1: I get it I mean you're talking to I think everybody on this podcast is a creative individual in the creative fields and things and it's tough to put yourself out there like that it's you feel vulnerable like you said you feel naked it's something that you really have to I, I don't know if anybody has like I Everybody it, we talk to always says. Uh, yeah, it's
7: sometimes it. Sometimes they like, "Oh my god!" It was like, "I never want to play again." And most <laughs> of the time, it's like, "Oh, that was like, uh, I, I don't want to do that again." And then we're like, "Oh, well, let's do it again." Like, and then every, every once in a while, there's like a very, very rewarding experience playing live that just makes us, yeah. Keep- Pushing
1: forward I again. mentioned that aggressive invincibility feeling of, of the early 20s, and that is the only reason I was able to actually get a career in, in the arts is because of that. And,
6: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, you know, you when you pair business with it, you do have to be forthcoming and you have to really push people to get what you're worth. And then over time, you kind of ease back on that.
3: And to try and offset those, those moments where you, you, you doubt yourself, me listening to your music... It appealed to me immediately. Even Julia put a compilation together for me of a lot of the bands that are going to be on the um, compilation. compilation. <laughs> and uh, I stopped in my tracks when I got to Music by You. This won't go over really well if you don't know this band, but I have a question here that says Did Sigaross copy you? Um, and if you're.
6: <clears throat> okay. I, think... I don't know. Oh, that, man. Yeah. I don't know that I can address that in a public (laughs) poll yes I'm I'm
7: to be be very cryptic if you can to start with
6: I will say no (laughs) um and then I will go on to somewhat change the subject and say one of the most frustrating things that happens in any part of the world whether it's music or it's art or it's Thomas Edison getting his patent for electricity before somebody else did One of the most frustrating things that happens is who wants to promote you? Mm -hmm. Who likes you? Who has the most sway? And what I can remember, because I'd already been working for 11 years at other people's record stores, and then we had opened our own record store in 1999. We had toured in Europe. We had played a number of festivals. We'd been in a bunch of magazines. All of a sudden... The kids, and I say that lovingly, I'm not that much older than a lot of the people who shopped at our store in the year 2000 or 2001. A lot of the kids started coming in and they were like, Oh, Radiohead said there's this band called Cigar Rose and I've got to have them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I listened to them and I was like, Huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I can remember being in Chicago. There's a really beautiful bar in Chicago that's about to close, and it's called Danny's. And we played at Danny's in 2007. And Joel, who owns and runs Cranky Records, Joel was the DJ that night. And we got in, and we were setting up our stuff, and he was playing some pieces by Talk Talk, and we were talking about music, and he said something about, do you like cigarettes And I looked at him, and I said, no. And I think there's a damn lot of people who have done it way better. But... Radiohead's not talking about them. Mm. And so we've actually seen cigarros I think, three different times. One, because the album leaf was opening for them and we're friends with the guys in the album leaf and they needed a place to stay. So we went to the show for free and then brought them home so they had somewhere safe to spend the night, the album leaf, that yeah. is. And once or twice because friends from out of town wanted to go and see them. And I can just remember thinking to myself, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Obviously, they love the Cocteau Twins. They've taken influence from probably a number of the same bands that we have, but I don't listen to them, and I think there's an amazing amount of musicians who have done a far more interesting job with the music, but Radiohead wasn't talking about them.
1: It's a very diplomatic way. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things we appreciate about Third Man Records uh, and Jack White is because he's very vocal about the artists that he appreciates. And I think Southeast of Saturn is going to be a great example of exposing bands like yourself and, you know, Majesty Crush and all that stuff to people that may have not have heard of them before this. So it's one of the things we really appreciate about Jack White in that way. But to touch on your evolution as artists, because one of the things that, you guys have got going for you that not a lot of other bands, either from the air or in any kind of genre, really can say is, you know, you've got quite a body of work under your belts. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your composition process. You know, you mentioned the album Portal earlier. And that's, you know, that's some pretty far out experimental sounds you've got going on. And we talked about atmospheric sound pictures and things like that. But by the time we get to Allegiance and Conviction, your latest release from earlier this year, I would say... That while there are certainly changes in the production style and maybe some of overall structure stuff, there's a consistency there. And I guess the question is, how has your approach changed from the the days of, say, Portal through Allegiance and Conviction?
7: Oh, wow. Um, Portal, I think, was I I did most of that on my own. It was all done, you know, quick takes, no like afterthoughts. Like I do a piece, I layer over it and then it would be done. And, you know, it kind of went really quick. The the latest album, it took uh, several years over periods of time. We weren't working consistently for several years, but, you know, there'd be a, a lot of months that we'd work on the music. Then we'd take a break again because we kept listening to it. We had to take a break because, so our ears could get fresh again. But, um, yeah, the the last one, The Allegiance of Conviction, definitely was considerably more time, whereas Portal was just, like, kind of done just like that and just as, as fun. And this one was fun, too, but... You know, we really wanted the latest album to have a really really nice sound to it. You know, we didn't want to put it out there until we were happy with the way it sounded completely and it, which is why it took a while. And Portal, you know, the first album it really didn't matter because it was just fun. Yeah. just kinda of like, Hey, look 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 what we're doing. This sounds great and okay, here, here's a bunch of stuff. We'll make a tape out of it and then put the C D out.
6: So my two thoughts on that are Portal. Carl essentially did all of the music and then gave it to me and I listened to it and wrote words to go with some of the songs. I do play bass on a song called Through the The Portal. Portal. Yep. was a um, an interesting piece because you could play it. I could play it for 15 or 20 minutes and it would put people in this really nice trance. But my, my point that I'm getting away from is Carl wrote all that music. On our current album, Carl wrote all that music. Hmm. I didn't have anything to do musically with the new record He had a series of tracks together and handed them to me, and I listened to him for a long time, and then started writing words, and the vocal process of writing and recording, because I wanted very specific things out of my voice on this latest record, it took two years. So he had been writing pieces of music sporadically over a four- or five-year period, and then it took me two more years just to do the words. So on one hand, we have two different records that bookend our career where Carl did all the music. On the other hand, I can hear Carl play guitar and go, oh, that's Carl. (laughs) Like, you know, and I have heard a lot of people do something similar in the same way You know, people want to copy who their favorite player is, and I understand that. But I can always hear something that Carl has done and be like, that's Carl. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that he, in my ears, he has a very specific sound. And if you go through our body of work, you'll find that sometimes pieces are really long. Like the Dream House, I think, is 33 minutes long. It was as long as a reel-to-reel tape at the time. Antarctica is 23 minutes long. And then we have other pieces. There's a song on a Detroit compilation that, oh, maybe Time Stereo put it out, or maybe Dion from the UFO Factory put it out, and it's like 10 songs from 10 Detroit bands, and they're all only a minute long. And so we have this little song called Clouds Within You, you know, it's it's a minute long compared to this, these epic things that we've done. But for me, it's always about Carl's guitar sound.
7: Yeah. I also do not play on everything that we've done. There's been uh, a true. few albums that Wendy plays a, probably more guitar than I do. And unfortunately, people... Have said, "Wow, your guitar playing is like awesome on these couple of songs." And I'm like, "When are you playing everything on that, by the way?" So you might want to like direct that toward her instead of me because <laughs> it's just not me, by the way.
6: Because you know, I'm just a girl, and all I can do is sing, right? You know, I unfortunately I get thrown into that box a lot on a regular basis. She can't play the guitar; she's just a girl. Um, but whatever. <laughs> Hilarious. i, I, know. Oh my I God. know who on earth ever put the ever made the record industry so difficult um <laughs> i i like to play the guitar and i started out playing bass carl actually taught me how to play bass and i the first song i ever learned was touch me i'm sick by mud honey mm. because i really love mud honey and so that was great and i also have a a real affection for Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth and if you're gonna have somebody who's like your instrument hero who's better than Kim Gordon and I was able to meet her once and she was really gracious about the place that she has in the world of music and how many people she's influenced and I appreciate her on lots of lots of different levels because of that but I started out playing bass and then A series of events happened in a short period of time where I went to the guitar show and I found this guitar for Carl that he had really wanted and the guitar show used to come to town every six months. And so in the mid-90s, we would go every six months and I went the first time without him and I bought him this guitar. And then the next time we went, we bought a very particular amplifier and a piece of equipment called a space echo. And that was when I started to play the guitar, because the three of those instruments together, the amp, the space echo, and the Fender Jaguar, their sound was so amazing to me, and I couldn't keep my hands off the guitar. And so I just started playing all the time, and... Of course, one of the things that was great about the Space <laughs> Echo was it made my guitar sound like Vinnie Riley from the Derity Column, who of course was, you know, they're my favorite band. So even though I regularly am still considered the bass player, I actually have been doing guitar stuff since 95 or mm-hmm. six. Yep. And then sometimes Carl plays bass, like on the new album, all the bass playing is him. Uh, yeah. Which is good because I can't, he can do all of that really fun, like, intricate blues style going up and down the neck and neat patterns and stuff. And I just, um, somebody described my playing once as like, I sound like I'm in The Cure in the very early days. Which is, it's pretty true. <laughs> my bass playing is really simple. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there's
7: something to be said for that, too.
6: <laughs> sure. It's, it's the notes you don't play. That's right. <laughs>
7: <laughs> and how you play the ones you do.
3: want to uh, take an opportunity to talk about your record store. Recently, uh, Hobie Eklund from Majesty Crush gave an interview where he made reference to the two of you, indicating that in addition to being exceptional artists, that your your record store was similar in quality to Play Again Records. And uh,
6: wow, (laughs) that's
7: like very nice of him to say. Yeah,
6: very sweet of him.
7: (laughs) So Um, if you could tell us what that
6: means. (laughs) Well, first, first, I'm going to say that the record store is in its last six months.
5: Hmm.
6: We've done this for 21 plus years and the business is really different than it used to be. And we've had some major changes in our family dynamics that have made us feel like Life is really short, and it's time for us to concentrate on our own art mm. um, because we've spent 21 years promoting everybody else. So mm. so it's kind of sad, and at the same time, we've been planning this for a couple years. Um, so Stormy is coming to an end. Mm. What I have loved the most about having the record store is that Oh, probably the two most important things in my life are dogs and music. And so, <laughs> I can't I can't be handing dogs out to people all day long, but I can <laughs> say to people, "Buy this record and it will change your life.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Buy this record because it's essential to what you're doing." And so, I have spent all of these years putting records into people's hands and saying to them, this is going to do something for you. And every single one of those people has come back and been like, I want more. <laughs> like, that was amazing. You know, Alice Coltrane's journey in Satch changed my world. Where do I go from there? And so, for me, that's been a just a marvelous joy all these years, to hear music and have a connection to it, and then say to other people, this is going to rock your world, and you need to have it. So that's the part I'm going to miss.
7: <clears throat> and all the customers that we've become friends with, too, we're, that's, that's going to be something that we're going to miss also. Mm-hmm.
6: And, and all the people that... We need to stop opening that door because the lock steep keeps... Oh, and there we go. The dogs
7: are barking at someone walking by. Get the neighbors.
6: <laughs> um, you know, we've ended up with friendships with so many of the people that have been coming in for so many years. We know their names, we know their kids, we know what their dog's name is. And then we did years and years' worth of mentoring and promoting people in local bands. Um, and so, you know, it's it's 20 years later and we can still sit down with, let's say, Ryan and Scott Allen from... Uh,
7: Thunderbirds, from, um, Red Shirt yes. Brigade, etc.,
6: And talk to them about what we're doing in the world and have them still be, like, sweet and kind people. And they will say really nice things to us about what it is that we mean to them. But the reality is that goes both ways. You know, it's fantastic 20 years later to still be able to talk to somebody and have them be nice to you. And I don't know. The store has meant a lot to us, and we did... Years and years of promoting music and getting the right records into people's hands. And I think that that's how Alan ran his store. He was really like, oh my God, Mercury Rev is amazing. Everybody needs to listen to Mercury Rev. And he would go to England and buy a giant stack of records and come home and be like, (laughs) okay, so you come here every week and you're going to buy these ones. (laughs)
7: Um, every, Every weekend we would pile in and be like, okay, we're all running to the same record, let's see who can get it before it sells out. <laughs> right.
0: Oh,
1: that's wonderful. Now if you had to uh, to suggest a variety of dog to every customer, what would you go with? Variety of dogs.
6: <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, well um, I really like labs because they're smart and they're usually gentle. We've had a couple oh, they're the best. we've had a yes. couple terriers through the years. And I will say that I don't ever want a terrier, and I don't mean a pit bull. I mean that we had a Jack Russell. Oh my God, that dog was such a pain in the ass. (laughs) And
7: uh, I became part of the pack, and Wendy was left out, and it did not work out very well.
6: We discovered that you can't have three dogs and two humans in a house. It gets real lopsided real quick. Yeah, I tend to like bigger dogs. And I tend to like more relaxed dogs. I don't have the ability to deal with a Border Collie or a German short-haired pointer. They need too much. I don't... I guess if I was going to suggest dogs to people, I would suggest them like the music that I like to listen to, and it would be you know, long form ambient. Hi, I'm a beautiful, relaxed dog, and I'm gonna lay around and listen. To records. Pick the dog
7: that likes to lay in front of your, <laughs> your amplifier and take a nap while you're playing. You know, you chose the right dog.
1: That sounds ideal for the type of music you're yeah. creating, so that's great. My my wife had two black labs growing up, and I I loved both of them, and uh, they are amazing, wonderful dogs. So I appreciate your lab recommendation. So thank you. I will run out and get a lab. <laughs> James
0: and I grew up with a Karen. Terrier, and we we love that dog, but I do I know what you mean about the the terrier (laughs) attitude. I had one, well maybe it was a Jack Russell or it was a Westie, I think it was a Westie. I was at a family function, I think it was a Thanksgiving or birthday or something, and the dog felt left out of the pack, just like you described, because there was another dog introduced to the area. And when we were playing, that thing ran up and bit me. Just shy of the of the kibbles and bits, shall we say? And let me tell you, that was that was getting your really, attention
7: there. That was awkward, you know, at a family <laughs> gathering. I was bleeding.
5: Oh dear!
7: I was bleeding. <laughs> they're, they're fast little little suckers. Sometimes, yeah, you yeah, <laughs> Well,
6: you know, everybody everybody wants to blame. Pit bulls and German shepherds for being dangerous and aggressive and for biting, but you know most small dogs bite, yeah. and the amount of pressure that they can create in their jaw yeah. can definitely injure a person. It's... So uh, I don't know. I have a per- I mean, small dogs are cute, but I like I like big dogs.
1: I know we've taken a gigantic. You want to reel it in. <laughs>
6: I know we've taken a gigantic
1: left turn from from your amazing music. Well, I'll go
6: back to the Hobie thing and say that (laughs) that was really kind of him to say that Stormy Records had a, you know, was like the, was similar to Alan's store to play it again. We certainly have put that much time and dedication and love into it. I know Alan really loved his store, and I know that sometimes he still really misses having the store and being in that place in society.
5: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, being able to turn people on to different types of music and to do it from a place of love and not like necessarily commerciality, even though it's a business, it's, it really is like a passion project. It's why we do this show. It's, you know, it's why I love Third Man Records for that reason. And, you know, we really wanted to thank you guys, you both for the music over the years and, and for joining us today. I wanted to wrap up our conversation here just talking a little bit about how you were approached for southeast of Saturn. Uh, was that – sorry, there seems to be a, an axe murder happening.
7: <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> My son He's going we to have, bed. We have anybody? dogs that are jumping around playing with toys waiting for dinner here. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, the, <laughs> was it two, two years ago we were approached by a, a friend, customer? A we, chance we, the Chanson. Chanson came to us a couple of years ago and said, you know, I, I'm really getting in – Getting into the whole scene that was going on, he was he was now part of it. You know, he's a little younger, so he, he didn't live it when it was happening. But he was he he really got into it with all the local bands, and he was like, I want to present this idea to Third Man, and I you know I really want you guys to be behind this idea for it to work. If you're not behind it, then I don't know if it's going to happen or not. So you know, we, we thought a little bit because it's been a while. You know, there were, like weird things happened back in the day in the scene and stuff. You know, a bunch of bunch of young people who are you know had different ways of dealing with things or whatever so we decided to that was a really good idea yeah that you know we were like you know th- that'd be great if you could make it happen we we were very skeptical that it was going to happen because we didn't we're like yeah, it's a little little dearborn detroit scene who's you know why is third man going to care about this you know
6: like we're not garage rock
7: yeah i mean like this this is like yeah, and it's I, it's, I, it's really really weird. Yeah, really strange. I'm i like, don't, you, know, he, you know, he was what? very passionate about it too, and we we're like, you know, go for it.
6: I am aware of the fact that Third Man has put out blues records and jazz records and yeah, all of these other things. But having a record
7: just, store, we're very familiar with what Third Man's been doing since day one.
6: We were like, Rich, I don't know that they're going to care about this project, but uh, yeah, if you want to run it past them, then we could be involved and. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Um, And then it just, you know, through the years, various people have come to us about different, no, no, no. Sorry, I'm talking to the dog. Uh, various people have <laughs> arf, arf. come to us about situations or releases and things haven't happened. And so we we kind of, at this point in time, we're like skeptical of everything other than working with Cranky. And we work with Joel at Cranky forever and ever. And we really respect him and trust him. And he's a good friend and an amazing business person. So then when it comes to anything else, we're sort of like, well, I don't know if that's going to work or if anybody's going to care about it or... So it was two years of us doing a lot of doubting, and Rich doing a lot of um, a lot of believing and preaching and putting things together and being getting s- a,
7: getting in touch with everybody who nobody else. We were like, "Can you? Are those people still around?" He's like, "I found them. Yeah, they are." I'm like, "Great!" Wow, <laughs> you're like doing a lot of work here,
6: Rich did a you're, lot you're, of you're work.
7: Obviously, really, really into this. Yeah,
6: he's been quite the archivist for this particular release and then i know that he has sketches put together for further volumes
7: oh wow awesome
6: for different years and for different scenes and
7: yeah there's definitely a handful of people that we did shows with and that we're friends with they were like i'm like oh my god they should have been on this he's like i couldn't do a quadruple album they wouldn't let me do it you know do (laughs) he's like but i want to present them for another volume i'm like please 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 amazing um
6: So, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, there's other labels in the U.S. and uh, and definitely in England who have done long-form series of, well, we're going to start with this year and this particular pinpoint on the map, and we're going to go out from there. And I know that Rich is really, really thrilled to be doing it. I mean, the man is so busy, I don't think he sleeps. And then it was super nice that the people at Third Man were like, you know, yeah, let's do it. And I know that that sounds funny, but you are talking to two people who have done music for 27 years who, like, the people who come in and shop at our record store, most of them have no idea that we have a band. Yeah. We will open up for somebody, you know, when when live music happened and when we were playing because we pretty much retired in 2012. Oh, my
7: God, there was one show we did at the Magic Stick, yeah.
6: Um, you know, so we opened for a... uh makes. make say think? Yes. Sorry. And people in the audience came up to us and they were like, "What the hell are you doing on stage? We're setting up our
7: stuff and like our customers who are you know twenty years younger than us are like, "What are you guys doing? Are you setting up for the band or something?" I'm like, "I'm the band. Never mind. Get away."
6: You no, know, these people just didn't. They didn't understand. They didn't. Um, we. I guess what I'm saying is we've spent twenty-seven years feeling pretty damn anonymous. So then it's strange to be like. Oh, well, here's Third Man Records, who is wildly popular, who have this incredible following for anything that they put out. You know, like people want to have that whole catalog, et cetera. And now they have invited us to be on something. And it's just kind of weird. I'm grateful. (laughs) um, But I'm going to say that after all these years of nobody essentially having a clue, it's it's weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think you guys and paul mccartney are going to be the subsequent releases
7: by third man in the matter
6: oh my yes. words so see now so that is just that makes no sense to wait wait me is, you, oh, is
7: paul mccartney doing a third man yes, thing? i had no idea yes i, have, uh, I saw wow we have like completely come full circle we're not related to paul mccartney <laughs> <lately>. wow <laughs> that
6: is bananas
0: well we want to congratulate you on this and on all of you and billy i want Sorry. music and success over the years and thank you so much for joining us today. It was a wonderful time talking with you both and I think we can all agree to hell with the dutch terriers in the state of kentucky.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really those jack russells especially. Yeah, really oh. just
0: just boot them off the planet. We don't need them. We
7: don't
6: need him. <laughs> Oh heavens. They're cute, but, man, they are bossy they're dogs. Not, they're
7: not, not, not a place in our life for those. No. <laughs> thank you, guys.
6: Well, thank you so much for including us and in having interesting Absolutely. questions. Yes, please. Yes. And laughing with us about all kinds of stuff and letting us be um, as direct and unbridled as we wanted in our comments. I know. Some people are probably like, oh, my God, I can't believe she said those things. But whatever. <laughs> like it's, been, you know, it's, yeah, it's been like 27
7: years. You know? Yeah, whatever. We, we've earned the right. Uh.
6: Well,
0: thank you. And thanks to our friends, Julie thank and you Tobias, too. for uh, helping put this together. So thank you all so much. was amazing thank you so much to julia and tobias for helping to uh, set those interviews up and we just had a great time getting to know this music you know james and i were fairly new to listening to shoegaze as a genre i guess we were tangentially aware of some of these things but we learned a lot we hope you all learned a lot too and we hope you all pick up southeast of saturn because that's a really really cool release and it also just looks gorgeous they have that what is it like a silver marble vinyl thing it's awesome so thank you everybody we're going to run through a couple other thank yous here so our patreon patrons uh we would like to thank uh, who is this julie julia hickling i don't
5: <laughs> julia hickling we like to yeah, thank not you, julia very much the three dollar hat make we'd like to thank
0: <laughs> Derek ferguson forever ferguson we'd like to thank michael brookfield the bone brookfield tam davis a third person spirit every week luke sinclair look me over closely josh aiken Joe shaking all over, Melinda Taylor, Melinda Taylor, <laughs> send me an angel down, Stu Cat, or Stu Driver, Kate McCoy, the Bones of the Operation, Brenda Englehart, we want to be those boys to warm your Englehart, and Yvette Wilkins, on Sunshine, Brett Garsky, Brett Three Killed, my Garsky, Elizabeth Myers, you're rolling in on a burning Myers, Melinda Endress, you look pretty in your fancy Endress, Shane Benjamsen, or the Shane boy you've always known, and Ashley Forbes, steady Ashley goes, James
1: to the social yes, and, uh, to the
0: social if, that's how i'm going to
1: throw it <laughs> <the> social <difference. laughs> if you'd like to connect with us in uh, in any any kind of capacity um, all the capacity you could do so all the capacity, the flux capacity, you could do so by going to Facebook.com slash third men. You can find us on Twitter at third You can tumble on down with us. It's thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com You can find us on our website. It's all fancy and, and it's and, really not. It's fine. I mean it's just it's the URL. Fine. It's fine. It's look, look. It's the URL is fancy and uh, I appreciate that. So anyway, we got uh, thirdmenpodcast.com you can uh, email us with any kind of listener questions, or just say hey, tell us what you like or what you hate about our show. Why not? Or if you'd like to bring
0: us an interview that we weren't expecting, that'd be cool too. Send us yeah, an email. do that, do, do that.
1: Yeah. Why not? So just, yeah, uh, you could do that by emailing us at thirdmenpodcast at gmail You can find us on Instagram where Paul posts lots of pictures and uh, stuff pertaining to the episodes at hand. That's at thirdmen underscore podcast on Instagram. You can help support the show by buying some some merch. Uh, you could do so by going to bitly merch where we got some fun designs for all the Kaminsky family podcasts. I don't know what what are we calling it. That well, ball? we're not? we're getting close to calling it
0: to actually actually firmly calling. I don't even know if we've said this yet already anywhere, but we're we're looking like we're going to call it headquarters. So everybody, stay okay. tuned for headquarters. There's lots of shows now. There's about five or six shows, so we just keep expanding.
1: It's horrible. We're like the blob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, our show is hosted by a we're on youtube find us there rate review and subscribe and until next episode james i will be looking for a home south by southwest of saturn
1: oh and i will be looking for a home i guess a little further than saturn maybe i don't know one of saturn's moons are titan- you gonna be in the butt one no i'm gonna, be on, I'm gonna be on the uranus it's t-
0: called because it sounds like
1: but t- on titan will be even better ah better
0: and at, at make, that's
1: would your, you like that's to? Your, say that's, your you are looking, that's your Are you key, looking that's for a your, home in any particular where, zone? Where are you going place? For a home? Are you at Four Seasons Landscaping?
2: <laughs> we will be looking for a home at the Four Seasons Landscaping. They're gonna, landscaping. Yeah,
1: they might increase the rent.
2: Oh, no.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but for now, the, it's right. got a great view. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a great view. All right. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. bye <laughs> bye
5: <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm, I've just just now recovered from a cold that I've been having all day, or all week so um, I am uh, at least not going to be hacking up a lung during this week
4: You know, anything that has a rhythm section, I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Dear God, thank you. You guys know that there's the shoe kind of waltz. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Oh, there we go. Yeah, cool. we're all here. So, no. is my audio okay? Can you hear me? Or?
6: I can't remember what TV show it is um, because we don't watch very much television. Um, but there's that part of me that's like, they're gonna take our answers and cut them up and make us answer <laughs> questions that they never asked us.
0: <laughs> Daily Show. <laughs> well,
6: yeah. and it's gonna turn well, into some wild monster.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I, I will put your mind at ease. Hey, we're all together. Everybody, everybody, start being
7: polite. We have the guests here. Everybody be kind to each other, please. Thank
6: you. <laughs> like Amen. Singing that all together now song. Oh, my word. There you um, go. Well, hi, everybody. How are you?
0: so what about the background guys
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, you get it. do you know
0: what this is is that the four seasons landscaping yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i thought I... it was i thought was.
1: yeah <laughs> i have a friend of mine who uh who bought a t-shirt from them recently because oh. i mean I, I live next to philly so everybody's just like oh <laughs> oh they were here <laughs>
0: Um, so I guess we'll just we'll so we're all familiar with each other's names. Uh, this is Paul speaking. I am m-
1: me. I am <laughs> I am me. So,
0: such a, what a weird way to, Paul is what a mean, weird way
1: to start. This is Paul speaking. I am Paul James uh, that that's me. I'm James. Uh, me and Paul nearly sound identical, so apologies. Uh, you could call us either name. It's fine. we we are hive mind. there,
0: yeah. okay. there won't be a quiz. Perfect And Tobias
3: I'm a I'm sorry I'm a rule follower yes yes sir (laughs) how
0: about about present
2: (laughs) it wasn't me and and Julia I am also present okay
4: now it should come back on okay is it okay sounds very great yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah apologies i'm gonna eat
1: for a minute uh just because my blood sugar is dangerous
4: <laughs> james's blood I'll sugar i'll note that on your time sheet. <laughs> thank you appreciate it <laughs> so
0: well we would like to i guess we'll just start james are you recording on your
4: own? i am recording i'm good okay, so we're all we're all
0: recording um well i guess we would like to start by welcoming uh, hobie ecklin of the band majesty crush
6: really fascinating day and i'm sure that everybody who thought they were done raking leaves got a really rude surprise today
1: (laughs) yeah i there's a there's been
0: a lot of instances lately where people thought they were done with things and then they're just not done anymore
7: and it's really frustrating
3: (laughs) yes
7: it is i've got to the point i'm like yeah i don't care if i do it now or in the spring it'll get done whenever that's Uh, right no stress Uh, very zen i like
0: So you're down in you're down in Long Beach, right? Yeah,
4: I'm in Long Beach.
0: Yeah, yeah, we love it there. It's I mean I haven't been since the the world started to ignite, but um, the, we used to love going to the aquarium. There's a lot of great um, record stores too. And, uh, I went to a listening party for an album down there. Oh, I forget what the record store is called. C- cool little joint. Fingerprints. With a, fingerprints. That's it. Yeah, it's fingerprints. Yeah. Really, really nice place. So.
4: Yeah, cool. There's like Five record stores that are like like you can vinyl i found uh i found uh down at the sunset grill by glenn fry which is like one of my favorite songs just because it's so weird and like it's a double a side 12 inch and it totally and it was almost like a joke looking for it because it's just (laughs) such a weird song it's a guy from the eagles all electronic i would dj that shit in the lobby of the standards and brothers would come up to me and go what is this and i'm like yeah well you know i'm a people's poet so
0: Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have Up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right all from me. Remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. Alright everybody, I'll see you on the show. I'm
5: John, I'm Paul, I'm John, I'm Rico.
7: and I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show.
4: I, uh, I think so.
0: We should be recording.
4: It. It I'm actually, I'm going to go into a smaller room. Like I'm in a, cl- I'm in an empty room by our pool in my condo. Yeah, so I'm going to go into the bathroom where it's much, um, there's no echo. And I have a bunch of pillows set up trying to soundproof it and a toilet. There we go. (laughs)
5: Nice.